Hello and welcome to the Create Your World podcast. This is episode nine. Ben, how are you doing today? Really good, man. And we've got a pretty interesting episode queued up for today, don't we? We do indeed. This is our very first episode where we have a very special guest on today, the one and only Mark Wilbur, who is from our mastermind group and whose uh, online website, Alchemist Camp, is we're going to dig into what that's all about today and his story. He's got a lot of experience in the EFL or English as a foreign language industry as well as uh, web development and uh, his journey is something I think we can all learn from. So I'm very happy to welcome Mark to the podcast. Welcome, Mark. Hey, Liam. Thanks. And uh, good to finally meet you as well, Ben. Yeah, it's totally great. You know, Mark, um, it's so funny because we only started this podcast like a few weeks ago. And when we started, I was so, so close to not sharing it with you. <laughs> and I'm so glad I did. I've listened to them all. You have. I think you're the probably, I'm not sure. Maybe there are some other listeners out there who've listened to them all, but I think you're the only one I know of who's listened to them all. I don't even think my mom's listened to them all yet. So. <laughs> she will. She will. She will. So, um, yeah, so thanks so much for your support. You've, uh, you wrote us a, a great review on Product Hunt, uh, and, that, and you've given us some really good uh, feedback, some constructive, critical feedback, and, and we've really appreciated it. Uh, yeah, because I, I almost didn't share, because I was thinking, well, this is kind of, it's probably not very good, and Mark's probably listens to much better stuff than this right now, so maybe I should wait a few months before sharing it to, with him. But I think uh, we've learned so much from your feedback already, so really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, happy to help, and I understand the feeling, because uh, it's, <laughs> it's really easy to just kind of like hide your stuff to yourself for a yes. long time. Yeah, it totally is. So uh, let's get the ball rolling. Um, Mark, where do you want to begin? Uh, we have a lot in common, actually. We've, we've both, we both live in Taiwan and uh, we've both had quite a bit of experience in the English teaching industry here. You're now doing something completely different and I'm sure that's something we all want to hear about. But uh, where would you sort of say your sort of journey in the online world or the on the or the entrepreneurship sort of where did it all begin? Uh, I guess so. The entrepreneurial part would start a lot earlier than the online part. I mean, I've always liked computers. I you know played a lot of video games as a kid. Mm. Um, kind of wanted to learn how to program, but didn't really. Had, had some friends that did, but when I was uh, when I was nineteen, I. I did a house painting franchise called College Pro Painters, really big in North America. I think it's a Canadian company, but they, they franchise little uh, areas of cities all over the US and Canada. Um, so each franchisee will get a zip code. Mm. And so it was one of these like crazy things where I, like throughout the spring, I did a lot of marketing and uh, got you know interested homeowners and then went out and estimated their houses and then uh, Ended up uh, getting deposits on the jobs that they wanted done. Wow! Hired uh, three paint crews of high school students, which, uh, like, managing high school students is just <laughs> about as difficult as you'd think it would be. <laughs> and I wasn't that much more mature myself, um, but it was it was a fantastic learning experience. Mm. I'm pretty sure per hour I, I earned very little because I was going 80 hours a week for the early parts of the summer. Gee. 
Um, but it was, yeah, it was great experience, great practice. And then uh, um, after I, I finished school and got to Taiwan, I was teaching English and then, you know, had still had that entrepreneurial bug and ended up uh, uh, partnering up with a couple of people and, you know, starting and running English school. So now that is something uh, that not many people can manage to do, just sort of put together an English school, uh, you know, in Taiwan or in, in um, any other East Asian country. It's actually, there's, there's a lot of bureaucratic overhead. There's a lot of uh, regulatory stuff to get through. Obviously, you've got to yeah. get funding and all that. Like, how did you get that sort of, how did that all happen? I kind of sidestepped all of that. Uh, I, I guess the online part uh, did come into play. Like I, I had a blog that was fairly popular in Taiwan where I was talking about you know, my experiences uh, learning foreign languages, especially Chinese, and my experiences teaching English. And I was really into language learning. Like it was my worst thing in high school. I made it my best thing in college. I did like a whole Japanese degree in two years, got pretty fluent. Um, I was, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't have time to, or money to go to like normal, uh, like Chinese language learning classes all yeah. the time in Taiwan. But I, you know, I, I worked at it on my own a lot and I, I got into this kind of school. There, there are a few in, uh, especially in Taipei where all the teachers are foreigners who can also speak Chinese and explain English grammar in Chinese and tell the kids, you know, to sit down and stop stealing each other's pencil cases and um, you know keep them in line yes. in Chinese and communicate yes. with their parents and all that. Um, so I was I was really interested in the different kinds of schools I'd seen in Taiwan and I saw that there were a lot of strengths of this kind of school I just explained which is kind of like the the foreign run uh, Bushiban or cram school where, where the teachers are all bilingual foreigners. Mm. Um, and I also saw like some strengths of the more popular chains where they just got foreigners fresh off the boat, but mm. had local teachers teaching half of the class. Mm, mm. Um, yes. And I, I found that nobody was that focused on what second language acquisition research actually said was effective like nobody was doing extensive mm. reading at that time mm. and nobody was really talking about like Krashen's ideas like massive comprehensible input mm. um, it was just it was really just a lot of schools doing the same thing they always had been mm. there were some like the the foreign run ones that were pretty heavily audiolingual um, and then so students got a small amount of high quality input mm. and usually had excellent pronunciation and uh, grammar when they thought about it, but kind of a small vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And then there were a lot where it was just like anything goes and the kids were really fluent with horrible grammar and pronunciation. Mm. Um, so I, I really cared about this stuff and I was blogging about it all the time. So because of that, some people that were already running a school that had been going for I think nine months but didn't have any students really, they reached out to me and um, the guy's name was uh, Simon, English guy, and he basically said, hey, like you, I can tell you care about this. 
here's what we're you know we're trying to do with our school. Do you have any suggestions like what could help? And we ended up talking more and found out that uh, we had a really good friend in common. So there was some level of trust. And what I did was I, I basically accepted an offer of 30% equity in the school, mm. wow. with sweat equity. And I was just paid per hour per student. And I was responsible for making the curriculum, teaching the early levels, or teaching like all the new students, basically, um, for the new program, and also doing the sales with their parents. So it was that's a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And my <laughs> my salary went down from like I don't I don't know. I was, I was making like twelve or thirteen hundred NT an hour with bonuses and stuff, down to just making like. 500 an hour because yeah. we had five students. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's um, like the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, but they <laughs> did have the school license. And um, uh, his the Taiwanese partner was, was, also, was like very, uh, very good on the administrative, kind of like big picture side as well. Um, and we, I just, uh, yeah, I just went for it. Mm. And on the, like legally, I didn't own anything. It was just an informal agreement. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was like, that's why it was kind of a, a thing that we had a good friend in common. Sure. Um, but it ended up growing. And, you know, at the end of the year, it was, you know, maybe I was at 80% of my old salary. And mm -hmm. then, you know, like in our second year, we, we actually bought out our nearest competitor mm -hmm. and moved like to right by an MRT station. It was, uh, it was really exciting. So you opened up like a second branch? No. Um, so we, we had a lot of students in a tiny, tiny location. Like it was, it was a, I forgot what the rent was. It was like 2,500 NT a month or something, mm. so maybe 800 US dollars or 700 US dollars. And the wow, place that, that we bought out had, a, had two classrooms that were each big enough for 25 students or so, mm -hmm. uh, or 30 if, if it's really packed. And they didn't have very many students, and they were just being crushed under their rent. Mm -hmm. So we just moved into their location, and most of their students continued on with us, although some left when we when we moved in. Um, their existing teachers stayed on with us. Okay. So, the end, um, we had, and also at that time, my um, my interest in the business increased because. Uh, the other two partners had a kid and they were really busy and I was putting in increasing amounts of time into it. Um, and it, yeah, everything worked out reasonably well. It wasn't like a, a huge success, but mm -hmm. we were growing steadily. Mm -hmm. and, it, and, and keep in mind, it was, it was not that flexible like you're talking about online businesses. Yes. But if you get twice the customers in a brick and mortar business, you probably need like twice the number of employees or maybe 1.9 times as many yes. or something like that. So this is what I think we really want to like get to is um, because what's so interesting is that you've had a blog, which is all about ESL as well. And then you've written an ebook, which is also about... Uh, oh, that was later. That was later. That was much later. So I, I sort of want to get into how, what sort of lessons did you learn with running the... The school um, just before 
just oh. before, sorry if I can just butt in. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. when Go. you were writing this blog, Mark, did you yeah. did you ever have any intention of of what it ended up, you know, leading you to and what it became, or was it just like a just you know a hobby, just a way of self expression and you know and and cataloging your experience? Uh, it was a, a lot of it was personal stuff, and you know a lot of the initial readers were just my friends and my family. Um, I did write a lot about language learning because I was interested in it and I wanted to get better at it. And I wrote a lot about teaching for the same reasons. Um, I didn't, I definitely didn't think that I would get a business opportunity because of it. Um, yeah. I, I think my, my only goal was maybe to be able to pay the hosting cost with AdSense, which it did for a while, like back when headsets paid better. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, I didn't see it as a business thing at all. It was more like, kind of like how we use, how most people use Facebook now, or maybe Facebook five years ago. Like we just, it was social. Like I, I had maybe 500 readers a day, but some posts would get like 50 comments. Mm. So, so like people were hanging there. out there. Like mm. I actually met one of my best friends through the blog because he had another blog and was also writing about similar stuff mm. lived in Taiwan. Mm. Um, had some couch surfers live with me for a while that I met through the blog. So cool. it was, yeah, it was definitely not what it turned into. And, it, and probably um, if I did think it that it would even get 100 visitors a day, I probably wouldn't have written as much personal stuff. Mm. Yeah, so I, as you said, you didn't, you didn't expect it sort of, sort of turn into like a business opportunity but it eventually did and and the ebook as you said comes later but i guess i'm really curious about like what was it you learned from running the brick and mortar cram school and how did you take that to you know um online and and where did you go with that because things were going really well yeah pretty well and not yeah. i mean so to be fair it was it was growing and it was going okay and we had some very loyal customers yeah some of whom like i have like old students parents that find me now like yeah. a decade later which is oh crazy <laughs> but uh but it wasn't it wasn't a runaway success like we we had some some issues with uh just like keeping track for our expenses and knowing exactly where we stood at any given point mm. and um, one big issue we had, which uh, I would say is a hundred percent my fault was just uh, uh, training. Like I, I think I made an excellent system and I did a really good job teaching. I think my partners also, you know, they were great people and did a lot of things right. But I didn't train teachers as well as I could have. Like there, mm -hmm. you know, there, there was one case in particular where a teacher was just kind of on the cusp of being at the level where I wanted him to be, but we just kind of trail off. And then I, I wasn't sure, you know, should I keep the teacher on? Should I, you know, invest more time? And I really should have invested more time up front and had like a really hard cutoff. Like you get, you know, four months of training and if you're still not at the level then, then you're out, but like really train level for those mm. four months. Mm. Um, so it it led to some issues where 
we had students, prospective students, that wanted to join, but only if they could be in my class. And I already had a full schedule, and my classes mm. were more advanced. So I, I guess I, I, I'd say one thing I learned is just how important um, the, the management side of a business is and how hard it is, which is one reason why I find uh, online businesses appealing because you mm. can go so much further with so many fewer people mm. and during the time I was you can scale without the complexity of the human element dealing with yeah. personalities and yeah conflicts and, and I, all the rest I also I think the maybe the biggest thing I learned from it is doing really well for a bad business sector is actually like not something impressive. It just means you should have picked something else. Like I, I remember we, I was thinking, well, elementary schools are closing classes because the birth rate in Taiwan at that time was like 1.2 or something super low, and it's still super low. I think so, it's under one now. I, it may be. <laughs> so, so there just there just aren't as many kids as there were. The market was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. We were charging a premium rate for that time. We were doing very well compared to the other schools, like the one that we bought out. But we were still, you know, I think after like the initial burst of, of you know, people realizing that we were an option nearby, we were probably growing, uh, this total estimation, but somewhere around 20% a year. Mm. Um, and at the same time, I knew a guy in Japan who was working at a video game company, like one of the small ones in Kyoto that, that did work for Nintendo and, mm -hmm. and others. And he was like, you know, like we're not doing that well. We only grew 35% and the industry is growing like 50% a year. <laughs> so that got you thinking. That really got me thinking. And I, you know, I read, I was still like kind of geeky when I wasn't a coder. So I read yes. Hacker News and I saw like all these stories of people doing stuff and I just thought, there's a lot of power in software and I would love to have like that long lever to apply to my business or whatever I'm working on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, more than just knowing Excel, which was kind of my, my low key superpower at okay. that time. <laughs> <laughs> it is a superpower if you can, it, if you can it work. It helped Excel. us a lot. Yeah. I'm sure for the accounting, I can imagine. And, and, and also just, yeah, also yeah. tracking uh, what, so one thing I did is I tracked every mistake every single one of my students made each class oh. and how many times they answered. So I could, and oh, I wow. entered it into a spreadsheet after the class. It took me like five or 10 minutes. Yeah. And so I could see like, oh, well, the, you know, this student Amy in the second row, third one over, has only answered like, you know, 40% of as many questions as the other students. Mm. So I'm going to make sure that like she's going to participate more in next class, wow. whether she wants to or not. And yeah. I could also see things like, um, you know, this other kid, Billy, makes a mistake every single time he has to pronounce a, a word that has, uh, say, a th in it. He doesn't stick his tongue out, yes. oh, so I mean. he like mispronounces a th every time. I'll give him some homework specifically for that. Yeah, and then maybe most importantly, or equally importantly. I could see a lot of students struggling with something mm. and use that as a signal to go back and mm -hmm. improve the curriculum mm. on that area or you know add more to the curriculum mm. for that area. So I you've got a really that. tight 
you got a really tight feedback loop. You got all these data points, and you're just plugging it in, and you, you just yeah, yeah. That's yeah, all for five to ten minutes no extra work. Well, I maybe put so. my heart and soul into teaching. Like yeah. that was yeah, that was not a problem for me. That's 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 really great. And uh, so, you, as you said, you you're starting to feel that I guess to put it simply that that uh, there are other yeah, because because you really had a passion for teaching and yeah. we can feel that and it's that's that's so marvelous and you're still teaching now but you went on a different road to to where you are now with Alchemist Camp and um, so can you tell us like because you were just tell, telling us a little bit about your your friends in Japan and then you were starting to look at software how did you make that transition and what was yeah what was the moment where you said you know I have to sort of move on from this. Well, to be honest, I had been working like overtime for four years straight on the school. And it, I was beginning to get a little bit run down. I, I, it wasn't, I, I did have a break in there at one point, but it was, I, I had been like super busy for a long time. And I, kind of thought about it. I thought like, well, if I keep doing this, it'll keep growing slowly. Um, but on the other hand, if, you know, what would I be like after seven more years of doing this? Mm -hmm. Like, like maybe <laughs> I, I mean, the lack of, of, you know, learning new things would, would put me in a bad spot or just the stress. And sure. so I, I kind of just reevaluated everything. I thought like, maybe I should, uh, uh, like do another bachelor's degree in mm. China, like all in Chinese, like really mm. get my Chinese to the next level yeah. or, you know, maybe try to get into software. And mm. ultimately I decided to try to get into software. Uh, I started studying on my own, could not get any job in Taiwan, mm. but I did find that there were opportunities in mainland China. And I, I had a former employee that had moved to Kunming and told me, like, come out there and check it out. I went out there, stayed with him for a month, and then decided to go to Beijing. And I actually did find a job at a tiny tech startup that was, was called SmartTots. It was uh, a, a, basically a platform for educational iPhone and iPad apps for young children, for like mm. two to seven year olds. Or TOTS, T-O-T-S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And I basically, you know, basically my pitch was, uh, I speak English so mm. I can communicate with people in your office. I mean, I speak Chinese so I communicate with people in, in your office, but I am a native English speaker and I've, you know, just finished running this educational business for the last four years. So I have, you know, some other experiences and uh, they, I, at first, they brought me in to like run HR. I really had like four employees, <laughs> and then I, I moved to uh, uh, developer support, and very slowly and gradually just became like a uh, maybe a one third or one half technical role where mm -hmm. I would I would help external companies that wanted to use our platform. I'd, I'd integrate their app with our platform, mm. so that included some programming. So sort of sales, but it was yeah, also it was like yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe two thirds sales, one third programming. Yeah, there's always these fusion sort of mix up roles in, in such yeah. small 
uh, startups. And right? if I, you know, if it's something yeah. that's really difficult, then the actual programmers would, yeah. would help out with it. Cool. And what kind of uh, was 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 that? They all apps, or was it was it all Apple? Yeah, yeah. Well, at the beginning, it was all iOS. iOS. And then, right. uh, about the time I left, like beginning of 2012 they started doing Android also okay and you had taught yourself enough like coding and and, and, and stuff to just to take on that role from the get-go yeah, yeah. I mean, while I was doing HR so I oh you were sort of learning on the side I as was, you were doing HR yeah, yeah. yeah and I had started learning some when I was in yeah. Taiwan mm. um, but once I was actually in that company and I saw like actual code that was being used to do mm. stuff mm. I could, you know, start working on things and asking people questions, and yeah. it definitely sped up. And you have so much experience learning languages, like spoken human languages, yeah. and you start to now learn, you know, coding languages. What are the similarities? What are the differences? Did you feel like it was much easier to learn? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know what language you started learning, but whether it's Java or CSS or whatever, but what did you feel? Oh, CSS. For it was my blog. CSS? For cool. My blog. Oh, of course. Okay, so you started with CSS for your blog. So do you, for someone like me, who have absolutely no coding uh, experience at all, and Ben's got a little, I believe, uh, but I'm very much into learning languages. I'm sure there are you know, lots of other people who have, have this sort of similar inkling, like I, I'm really into languages, but like, what about coding languages? Is, is that just a whole other realm or are there parts of that, the same logic, the same sort of process that, you know, you, it's like like a, a duck taken to water, that kind of thing. I think a lot of the skills transferred. Mm -hmm. like I, I definitely think I made more progress with software than most people starting out, even mm -hmm. though I was, you know, over 30. Mm -hmm. But uh, the difference would be that in language, in human languages, there's a lot of ambiguity. Hmm. And in a coding language, there really can't be. Like, it's a big problem if there is. It's like, well, you know, it runs fine on my machine, but not on yours. That actually means something's broken. That means there's a bug, yeah. yeah. Ambiguity just translates to, yeah, your code's buggy. Yeah. <laughs> ben, do you have uh, any thoughts on that yourself? No, I just, uh, I'm just pretty interested by the comparison because I don't speak any other languages other than English, so just... Uh, interested to see what I'm missing out on. Maybe one other thing I'd, I'd throw in there would be uh, for foreign language learning, I think a lot more of it is just memorization. Hmm. It's like it's really hard to do something clever and get around just needing to know thousands and thousands of words. Sure. Whereas with, maybe with, with coding, um, you you get more of an ability to... to uh, build up off of small things. So, so I felt like with language mm -hmm. learning, once I got the basic phonics down, I could learn really fast and then it would taper off over time. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. with programming, maybe it was the other way around. It was like, if, if I have, you know, two months of experience, then I can only do something horrible and not interesting. But if I have six months or a year, I can do way more. And if I have three years, then Right. Then I could solve things that used to take me like a whole day and an hour. That's so interesting. So, is there more uh, intuition used, sort of, or is it, is it like because it's a it's essentially a problem solving exercise? A lot of 
a lot yeah. of coding I, I imagine. So is it, I I actually in my ignorance assumed there was a lot of memorization. I thought that's but I thought it was more about memorizing like there's a lot of pieces Googling. of code. There's a lot of Googling. <laughs> well, they're, they're all... There's a lot of Googling with uh, with spoken languages too, with translation. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that's gotten way easier than it was when I was learning Chinese. It totally, yeah, I can imagine. So let's uh, let's come on, move on to you, you. So you're in Beijing, and then uh, you you end up in Silicon Valley. Yeah. So I, I was there for a year, and I was like, all right, I've learned enough that. I think I can make it. And, and I was hmm. over-optimistic. I, I had a, a friend in Beijing who had lived in San Francisco before, and he mm -hmm. had his own very interesting online business. But I basically saw, I mean, I, I made three Flash games from scratch, and I had, uh, I had made some software that the HR, uh, that the company used on the HR side for screening applicants. And I had I had fixed some broken stuff in external companies' uh, iOS games, so I thought, I have what I need, and I'll go for it. It was too early, uh, and I almost failed. Like, uh, I, I moved out to San Francisco and discovered it was super expensive. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was expensive, but it was I underestimated it. Were you in the Bay Area? Yeah, I, yeah. so I ended up living in a very inexpensive part of San Francisco in the heart of Chinatown and I hooked up the apartment from Beijing. Ah, and perfect. I, I think some <laughs> listeners will probably be horrified or shocked, but uh -huh. in 2000, end of 2012, early part of 2013, I was actually just paying $500 a month in rent in San Francisco. Oh. And um, is it like that, like in Chinatown now? Is it? Is it? Has it, was, it been much more gentrified, or is it? Is no, it still really? It was, no, Stockton and Clay, which is kind of like the heart of Chinatown. Okay. And everybody, I mean, not even that many people in my apartment building spoke Mandarin. Like it was yeah. almost all just like Cantonese. All yes, over the yeah. I mean that's yeah. Um, that's... But I could read because they use traditional characters, same as Taiwan, and yeah. Um, and knowing Mandarin was enough that I could communicate enough and mm -hmm. um, it was you know it was mostly older people they were, they were mostly not from Hong Kong they're actually mostly from from Guangdong, Guangdong or, right, like, yeah that general part of China yeah and um, I still almost ran out of money because everything else was expensive mm -hmm. besides rent and mm -hmm. the hiring bar in Silicon Valley is really high and mm -hmm. And I think there's certain groups of people that that get a much easier entry point. Um, like, say, if I had just graduated from school, there would be a lot of companies that might take me on as an intern or, or something like that. But for some, you know, random guy who was like teaching English in Asia <laughs> and was like already 32, 33, yeah, which isn't that old, except in Silicon Valley, it's yes, very old. Yes. Um, <laughs> You know, it was it was a little rough. Like a lot of sure. places, uh, just take one look at you and say, yeah, hey, like they, they wouldn't even talk to me. Ten years too um, late. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was more like if you're. I think the thing is they were comparing me to people in their mid thirties or mm. early mid thirties mm. who had been working as a software engineer 
since graduation a decade sure. earlier. Sure. So obviously my skills were not at that level. Yeah. They were higher than you know some people, but um, yeah, ultimately I, I just I did a lot of um, like very like lowbrow fix up a website for some uh, some restaurant or some some like solo real estate agent or stuff mm. like that like mm. fixing up WordPress blogs. Um, I earned about seven thousand dollars two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah, yeah that's it, was, it was it was <laughs> but uh, then I I studied JavaScript really intensely uh-huh. um, at a school called Hack Reactor uh-huh. for three months, and when I finished that, uh, and no Not one had heard of the that one. Yeah, no one had heard of it then because it was like I was their second class, and no one had even finished when I started. But by the time I got out, like I had a job offer from a Japanese video game company and Groupon, uh, another uh, small How did that happen? Did you, did you network with somebody in the, in the class or? No, it, it, there was a one networking component, which was I, uh, I made a fairly ambitious uh, like web game that involved uh, like robots that you program in a programming language that I made to fight each other and I had an interpreter <laughs> that would like basically run this other programming language from JavaScript in a browser. Wow. And it used some technologies that Groupon used. It used CoffeeScript, it used Backbone.js, which is kind of like the precursor of React and some of okay. the front-end frameworks people use now. Okay. Wow. And I love it. A recruiter was there, or not a recruiter, just a Groupon engineer was there. I was like, hey, we're using a lot of these same things. Like, do you want to come in for an interview? And the the thing I most hate about the Silicon Valley job uh, hiring process is just the the crazy interviews. It's like tell us more. The, uh, it was <laughs> so first they had a phone screen with me and asked me like various technical questions for an hour. Uh-huh. Actually, very first was just an HR screen of just like, is this a crazy person? Yeah. Past that, that's, okay. like, that's like an hour of uh, technical phone screen. And then the final step is you go out to the office. And this is how uh, Groupon, uh, Google, Facebook, like all the bigger companies have a similar format where you you go into a room with a whiteboard, someone will come in, they'll ask you a bunch of technical problems. You're not allowed to use a, a computer, you can't type, you can't Google anything. You have to like write code on a whiteboard oh. to solve the problems, and they will <sighs> grade you very harshly on the performance characteristics of your solutions. Um, then, after an hour of that, they leave, and someone else comes in and does it again. God. And then maybe a third person will come in, and it'll all be about you know design. Are you wearing a suit? Event. No. Thank God. Like, uh, I'd be just like shorts oh. and flip flops. Thank for God. Most of the people interviewing me, I had like I would just like be was in such a sweat. I think I was wearing shorts and a button up shirt. That's yeah. So fortunately, it's it's not like New York or something. Yeah, but, right. But Thank God, <laughs> if you survive this gauntlet, then you, know, you get a job offer. Yeah. And there was a lot of momentum in the process because it, it turned out I was I was interviewing at. Uh, about six places at the same time. So you were going for this job and it was starting to gain momentum, the interview Right, process. the process had some momentum to it because I was interviewing at like six places at the same time. Well, it was a 
Japanese game company. Actually, it was, it was a lot more at first, but it filtered down to six on-sites. Um, Japanese gaming company, a uh, few uh, smaller startups. There was a, a consultancy, not Pivotal Labs, but a place that was kind of like that. Hmm. And then uh, Groupon. And I was also in the pike for Google, although not to the on-site yet. And the companies, especially Groupon and Google, were asking about each other. And they, they kind of do that because if they know you're already in the interviewing pipeline for somewhere else, then they have more, uh, just more urgency to schedule your interview sooner and that sort of thing. Hmm. So by, uh, basically by virtue of having applied at a ton of places and then gone through a lot of phone screens in the same week and then having on-site interviews at different places in the same week, I got three different offers at the same time. Okay. Well, this so sounds a lot like some leverage. That sounds a lot like um, you know, the the TV show Silicon Valley. What they you know what they what Pied Piper went through. You know they they, they do all this kind of like trying to get VPs sort of playing off each other. Does does that actually like happen with the with the job hunting as well? There's a sort of a if one one if one company susses out another company is interested in you, they sort of a you know they sort of smell smell blood and you know they want it, they want some more, so they they sort of come up. After you, I, th I think the herd mentality really happens interesting. everywhere. Yeah, okay. But mm. it's ironic you mentioned this because, or not ironic, but it's interesting because as soon as I did take the job at Groupon, mm. um, I would have preferred Google at that time, but they were too slow. And Groupon at that time was was definitely highly respected on the engineering side, mm. so it was a huge win for me. Mm. As soon as I updated my LinkedIn, say that I was working there, mm. I got like fifty contacts from recruiters <laughs> trying to get me to go to their company. It was crazy. It's like, this is like, I just took a job. It's, it's like if you, you know, update your relationship status on Facebook and say you're married, then all of a sudden all these people are like, hey, like, what, what, you want to go, like, you know. <laughs> what if you had to say, want to rent and pause? Oh, it's ridiculous. Um, and, and it's the, yeah, the recruiting situation is totally, well, it, it's not totally a herd mentality, but there is, I think especially in my situation because I looked so bad on paper, mm. being like a Japanese literature major, having <laughs> lived in Asia for a decade, mm. um, there's a certain skill threshold I had to hit. But after surpassing that, like say after I was already inside of Groupon, when I met people either at the company or externally just at a meetup or something, and they find out that you know, everyone else there that they're talking to, like, you know, was a CS major or went to Stanford or something and was working at like Groupon or LinkedIn or Palantir or Google or, you know, some company in that, you know, South Bay area. And that my background was you know, teaching English to lots of eight, nine year olds. They would actually be more impressed. They'd be like, and you still managed to get in here. Yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting. There, there was definitely a flip in the mentality. There's, there's, it's two sides to that to that sword, and so they 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 can kind of see they they it becomes a a strong point for you. It's 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 yeah, yeah that's really interesting. And, and I think just by virtue of that one job, although I like since then I I worked at a, a YC company and I had my own startup that got a, a YC interview. Um, just by the Groupon job, I think. It pretty much guaranteed that not having a computer science degree wouldn't be a serious barrier in the future. Mm, mm, so exactly, I hate the interviewing process, but on the other hand, without it, 
I probably never could have gotten into the industry. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of people from non-traditional backgrounds. Right. So the interview process, although incredibly strenuous and stressful, it is meritocratic. At least to a degree. I mean, it's it's kind of a stupid contrived game. Like there's this book called uh, Cracking the Coding Interview that huh, has huh, huh. tons and tons and tons of of questions asked by companies uh, like the the big five tech companies and and bigger startups. And we'll link to that in the description. Everybody reads that book, and or at least a lot of people do, and the hiring managers all know that everyone's reading it. So when they ask a question, um, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's one you've already solved before, or, or sometimes, more often, it's just a sort of similar kind of problem to what you've done before. Sure. Do they ask those sort of values-based or sort of more, you know, I guess, quote-unquote, humanities-ish questions in these kind of tech interviews too? Do they ask you, you know, like, you know, what, what, what would you say is an important sort of a social issue of our time? Do they, do they go for that as well, or do they just purely focus on that? It the depends tape? on the place. Like, there's mm. actually a lot of, of variants. Like, some smaller uh, startups often will just have you pair program. They'll just sit down with you, like sharing a keyboard at the same computer, mm. and have you work through a problem with them. Hmm. Um, it's a very different style of interview, and it, it, it favors a different kind of candidate. Hmm. Um, the uh, the last place I worked uh, was Verbling. It's a, a YC startup started by three Swedish guys who all went to Stanford, and basically, I think except for me, almost everyone they hired was from Stanford. So <laughs> I had a little bit of you know <laughs> felt a little bit awkward for for a bit, but. Uh, they were great people. Yeah. Um, they did ask one question that was purely uh, like a more philosophical, moral puzzle. What was that? Uh, it was fairly involved. I don't remember it all, but yeah. it was. It, it basically did it involved. Take you just... It involved a bunch of people who did uh, things that could be questionable or defensible. Um, and you have to kind of like rank them on, on like how ethical they were. Okay. And it totally depends on, you know, what your own cultural background sure, is. Sure, that's forth. so interesting. And was it, were you just completely unprepared or were you caught off guard? Well, you it was, like, oh my God, it was how a do I pair this? interview. So um, um, I was in there at the same time as this uh, ex-Facebook guy. And we ended up going through most of the, like the technical parts of the interview pretty quickly. We were taking turns and pretty much agreed with what the other one was saying. And but mm. by the way, this is the only pair interview I've been in. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was very weird, but <laughs> but kind of interesting. But the you know the ethical puzzle, oh, actually, wait, no, that wasn't during the interview. That was after we were hired, because it was, it was a whole bunch of us in the room. But we couldn't reach a consensus. Right. And the CEO's point was kind of like, well, so like, there are some things that are easier to get a consensus on than others. <laughs> um, and it was, it, was kind of, it was kind of relevant, because... This company was uh, like a platform for language tutors, so there were users from all over the world. So there's your language background coming back again. I so didn't show up there by accident. I, I, <laughs> I truly cared about what they what they were working on. And what happened with that platform? Um, well, it's still chatting along. Um, it's. 
it was hard to work someplace where I cared that much about the product mm. and was not running it. Well, I see. I, I had some ideas. I had a lot of ideas they didn't because I had been a teacher before. Mm. And I think I was like a relative, other than the fact that like all Swedes pretty much get English for free, I think <laughs> I was probably a more enthusiastic language learner than at least two of the three of them, probably all of them. Um, and it, you know, it led to some different ideas and, and they were great people and they were receptive to a lot of my ideas, but they also had their own ideas about a lot of stuff. And sure. It's their company, right? Yes. And the other thing, the other thing is like they had been working on it for years and I just showed up. So from my point of view, uh, I had very little sunk cost. I, I felt like there's this canvas, there's this stuff to mold. We can just, you know try crazy, th not crazy things, but, but I was, I was much more experimentally minded. I was mm. thinking of like big changes and improvements mm. and they were probably, I, w I would assume thinking about what it took them to get to where they already were. Mm. Um, so they, they had, I guess maybe the biggest difference is I, I believed in a, a much more integrated platform and they believed more in the Let's just do one tiny thing really well because that mm. worked well for Uber. That worked well for Airbnb. What was that tiny thing that they were really super focused on? They just on? wanted to do tutoring. I wanted to include more tools for uh, language exchange partners. Uh, and I, what I really wanted like a Hello was, Talk kind of a thing. I actually, yeah, like yeah. Hello Talk is yeah. in many ways that's the same stuff I was talking about right. in twenty fifteen. But um, the the thing that I really really wanted was something was cheaper because like I love language learning mm. but let's say I want to learn German I'm not gonna pay like $20 per hour to a tutor mm. for enough hours to get to where I'm fluent in German or I wasn't at that point and I was like a software engineer in Silicon Valley mm. so it was like kind of pricey for me then um, that totally leaves out some of the people that can gain the most from learning languages. I got it. Because you're right, as a language learner myself, uh, everyone's got a different approach to how they how they learn languages. And you're, I guess what you were saying is like, if this platform wanted to achieve scale, they have to have something for everyone. Have to have sort of a buffet approach where if you want tutoring, you can go to this, this, this page or this part of the, the app. If you want a partner, you can find it here. Is, was, was that sort of what you envisioned, I that it would really br open up the space for, for them to grow? No, my, my focus wasn't nearly as commercial. I mean, I, okay. would, I would say I was uh, more of a missionary than a mercenary. <laughs> I, uh, uh, from the way I think about it is for you or for me, yeah. if we learn another language or even having learned Chinese, like yes. we don't gain that much from it economically. Not but really, no. For <laughs> the people that I met when I was living in Vietnam for a few months, mm. like if they learned English, it would triple their salary. Yeah. And there are a lot of people like that in the world. Wow. So I, I think the main value in language learning is actually for people mostly in Southeast Asia and right. Africa who don't speak English. Yes. Because that's, that's the language with by far the biggest... Uh, Ability to change that's people's huge. Lives. That's right. There's a big difference between people learning it as a hobby or to, you know, communicate with people on on a holiday and people that need it for their job. Yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely, and this is something I'm I'm pressing up against uh, with my own platform. Um, I I'm starting to realize that the current my current group of users um, they are not they don't really have like a very strong economic incentive or very real need uh, sort of a more material need. It is for them more interest-based, more something they like to do. It's it's a hobby, which is great, uh, but I'm starting to reflect on what then, what kind, what business model is apt for really sort of um, monetizing a more of an interest rather than a real economic need. I f I'm finding it's there is a, there is a challenge. It is a different different process when you're trying to sell to someone who, yeah, would like to learn language and is interested, but if they don't, it's not going to really change their life. You know, they're still going to have a, probably the same job, the same, the same situation, uh, you know. So I, yeah, I, I agree there's, it's, it's not only massive, there's not only massive difference obviously between the types of people that learn languages, but also why they're learning languages, the incentive What's their endpoint? Are they trying to get a job? Are they trying to study overseas? If they're either trying to get a promotion or find a job, a specific job, or you know, get you know into a university in say America or, or, or elsewhere, there is a very so into it. real incentive. Well, the, well, the, the interesting thing is their heart and soul might not be into it. They might not really want to learn English, but, but the they, pain they point need is to. so much sharper. The, yeah, yeah, because there's just that that critical. There's a, there's a jump they have to make. They have to get that score for the TOEIC test or whatever it is, TOEFL test or whatever it is, so they can get into that school. And if you can provide the turnkey solution, if you can provide that, hey, you you know, you take the magic pill, you take my course, and you pass that test, well then you can you can just charge so much more. But as Mark said, it's like uh, if your heart and soul is in that, if you if you really care about the language learning process itself. Yeah more than just for cap commercial reasons, then, then you may be at odds. You know, in, you, may, you may have a bit of a, a, a struggle or an inner conflict in, in sort of this in, this in is the why way you so go about building such a product market model. fit, right? Like there's so mm -hmm. many different exactly. sub-niches within, you know, within this niche, within this industry. And unless you know exactly mm. which one you're going after, you're not going to build the right product. Mm. You're not going to charge the right amount. Mm. Exactly. That's you. You put it exactly right, Ben. So, so Mark, coming back to like where you were with this. So, I I'm really curious. Like, where did you go from there? And like, uh, how does this eventually move on to to what you're doing now with Alchemist with Alchemist Cam? Sure. Um, I was. I would say while I was at Verbling, I yeah. Verbling. Verbling. Yeah. I, yeah put in a lot of work. Like I did a lot of, I wrote code all day and then mm. I, I did more work on like the marketing side at night just because I wanted to. Mm. Um, so I think they got a good deal with me, <laughs> but I only stayed for seven months. Okay. And after that, I thought, you know, I was thinking about this conflict. Like, do you want to be someplace where you don't care about it at all? Like Groupon for me. Like, sure. I, I am not passionate about group coupons <laughs> like that just doesn't then, get does that float your boat <laughs> not really man but no you know but I, but it was learning neat tech stuff um 
and and like I like my coworkers and all that. Uh -huh. But uh, what was what were, what were the kind of tech things that you were that they were you know, getting well, burned up on? There? I was still fairly junior, and I was learning. You know, I was learning more JavaScript. I was learning um, more front about, end. Yeah, I was doing front end, but I was also I was learning more back end stuff uh -huh. while I was there, and I uh, I was learning how like you know big companies work and how uh, um, uh, how how to work with uh, um, a, a team where there's a totally separate designer who doesn't even know CSS and just like makes something in Photoshop and then passes it off to yes. people who know CSS and JavaScript. <laughs> I, was, I was learning about um, you know how to uh, estimate project time and how to you know, just a lot of the a lot of the softer skills, but also mm, mm. I was working with very very technically competent people. I, I actually the team I was working with was a bunch of Chileans who had built their own company that was kind of like a Groupon of Chile. Oh, and then Groupon acquired them. Okay, so like it was a really really impressive team of people. Wow, and uh, yeah, I learned a lot from them. That's amazing. So. Um, I, I guess after Verbling, I. But your heart wasn't in it. Yeah, and, yeah. and also I was sick of living. I, like I was sick of the Bay Area because sure. it's so expensive, and it's sketchy. It's it's like super expensive, and I was encountering like on average seven people asking me for money on the way to work every day. I was passing like tens of homeless people on the street every day, and it's really uh, psychologically draining. I know it's. You know, it's unfathomably worse for them, but just as one person, it's not possible to help everyone. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was just a, a Dickensian city, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I, I uh, yeah, I wanted to just get out. I, I heard about digital nomads, so I went to Chiang Mai for a few months. Oh, you did? Cool. And I went to Vietnam for a while. Yeah. And I. I decided I wanted to work on some online products, so that's when I, I started uh, with the eBooks mm. that, that you mentioned earlier, mm. and then I was thinking like, what can I do software-wise uh, for language learners? Mm. I specifically did not want to compete with Verbling. Yes, I didn't want to do anything that was like directly competitive with them because, um, well, because I like them. Like they were they were nice people, and I. Feel like well, it's there's nothing unethical about competing with a former employer. Like mm. it's a little, you know, it's a little bit dark if you like still really like those people and want to, you know, want to uh, be friends with them in the future. Mm -hmm. So, um, did you think about doing something similar to Verbling but just in a different market, or were they essentially a global kind of? A, oh, they're global, but yeah. well, the thing that would be a different market from them, which which is what I was interested in, mm -hmm. is tools for customers. Who by just by being from a country where the GDP per person is like two thousand dollars, they're mm. not interested in. Yeah. Um, but the first thing I did was actually a, I, I did a desktop app for uh, for learning Julian Fu Hao, which is oh okay, you know all about that. Yes, it's, it's like the Mandarin phonetic <laughs> symbols. It's like a, a what people used to use in China before they made Pinyin. Well, that's what I'm it's thinking. Like, like is there any system. demand for that? Is it, do people still need that? I mean, other than in well, it Taiwan, was, it was <laughs> an ear trainer as well. Yeah. Okay. So, like, part of the idea is oh, that's a freaking good you idea. You listen to the you, like you learn the symbols from hearing the sounds. Yes. 
and rather than using like Roman characters. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, part yeah. of the idea is like even if you already know Pinyin, go with, going through this should improve your listening abilities. Like mm. if, if you're like so you're like a second year um, like Chinese major in the West. Yeah. It could be useful for that person. Yes. I didn't really build it to completion. Like I built a very very early version of it, mm -hmm. and then I I got into like. Uh, try to build chat rooms and stuff and I I I guess the biggest thing I got during that time was I learned more technologies like I had been working exclusively with JavaScript mm -hmm. Node.js on the server side and I had never really learned Ruby on Rails mm -hmm. I knew the Ruby programming language fairly well but never used Rails and I did and I was like wow like I've been I've been using Node for three years and I've only been learning Ruby or learning Rails for two weeks, and I can already build something faster with Rails wow. than I could with Node. Now it's it's not more scalable, uh, and it's not as performant, which is why companies like Groupon or Airbnb at that time were replacing parts of what they used to do with in Rails with Node. But that doesn't matter. Like I, I wasn't like a billion dollar company. I just, yeah. I just want to make something quickly. Okay, so to like in a nutshell, Rails is just like. It, it's super fast and it's super effective, but it just doesn't scale as well. It's super productive. Super productive. It doesn't scale as well, but in reality, um, if you're doing anything where your customers all pay you, hmm. it scales infinitely because you just buy more servers. You're making Got it. Money, right? Okay, so so it doesn't scale because it takes up more server space. In other words. It's not because it's, there's anything particular about the structure of the code which which, uh, yeah. There's a thing called a language, there's a thing called a global interpreter lock, which okay. basically, um, if you have a, a computer with a lot of cores, mm. you can it can do lots of things at the same time. Yes. But if you have a Ruby on Rails server, uh, you can only be, you can you you can't, how do I how do I not mis misstate this? You even though Ruby itself can use multiple cores of the machine, mm -hmm. your server will only use one at a time, mm. and it's it's just a basic limitation of the way it's it does concurrency. Wow! And other languages uh, like Elixir, which is what I'm using now. Uh, are super good at using all of the cores. Or Scala is super good at that. Okay. You can with Java, but uh, with Ruby or Python, uh, like if you're using Django, you're going to have problems trying to do two things at once. Now, if you've just got a normal website where you're loading pages, that's no problem. But if you're doing chat, mm. there are problems. So usually they'll they'll dish off some of the work to an external. Thing like uh, Redis is like a really fast uh, uh, in-memory data store, and so a lot of a lot of sites written in one of those languages will use Redis, but there's some overhead for doing that, and even just rendering a page is not the fastest on those technologies. Mm. But they're they're high-level languages, so you can you can write your application quickly. Okay. So it's a trade-off of like how long it takes you to develop versus how how fast it runs, mm. and they have a special problem when it comes to concurrency or, mm. or chats. Just think anything with, with lots of events happening, like chats yes. going back and forth, or like, um, uh, what else maybe like, like Google that? Maps kind of thing, mm -hmm. where you're getting location data sent by every time someone moves their, their thumb on the screen. Yeah. Um, 
and it turned out that I was building video chat, which Rails was not ideal for. Okay. I got something built very quickly. Yeah. I took it to a language exchange meetup in, in uh, Saigon, and it crashed my servers with like 12 people. Great. So like, hang on, we got we got to set the scene here. Yeah. It's like some downtown, like 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 a like a cafe uh, cafe it's just cafe. It's just a cafe around. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Saigon is uh, is beautiful Speaking coffee. Gonna open a coffee. Yes. Right now. Speaking of coffee, I love exactly. Coffee. Yeah, and uh, Vietnamese coffee is something spectacular. Uh, and so you you're just hanging out in this cafe in Saigon. And how did you get this this language meetup together? Like, how did you find these people? I met a French first. guy that was running it. Cool. Yeah. Okay, and you're like, "Hey, listen, buddy, I got this. I got this code. I want to. I want to. I want to give it a try." And he's like, "Yeah, come on." So, yeah. so you're sitting in this cafe, and everyone's got what their phones or their laptops open, and you, you've you've got your side up, and everyone's logging in. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you're like, "Okay, start chatting." Was it English or is it like Vietnamese? just video chats? It's just video chats. English and English and Vietnamese. So perfect. Perfect. And few French how, people. How long did it? How long did it last before? Oh, those servers crash. Oh, people like, are starting to get well, their okay, shin so, so and, first of and, all, and, <laughs> one is one server. So I, I was on a five dollar a month digital ocean yeah. machine. Oh, very cheap. Digital ocean, Ben. Yeah, this same is, one. Uh, yep, Ben. By the way, I'm, I'm still using digital ocean now with my my current setup, and it would handle far far more people than we're at that meetup. But okay. um, <laughs> it's come a long way. Yeah, now. yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, it, but anyway, like it was, yeah, it was just a few minutes, and it was, it was basically because I, I, even though I was doing the the video chats through something called WebRTC, which mm -hmm. does peer to peer connection, like yeah. your browser to the other person's browser. Okay, so there's no third party in there. There isn't usually, but sometimes there has to be a server that that helps the others, the two users, find each other. Oh, okay. Depending on the firewall. And, Oh, okay. Um, but I was still sending like the chat information through my server, mm. and yeah, it was it was just not it wasn't that well designed, and uh, it was also not the right technology choice. Did the did the people take it well? Or were they like? No, they thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, no, everyone, yeah, everyone was like, "Well, yeah, like maybe that's we'll cool. try next it's week." Oh, that's great. That was but, a good experience. Yeah. But it was a kind of a setback for me because I was like, "Oh, geez, like." This was like such a joy to build, and then mm -hmm. you know, like it, it really, even I mean, for what I'm working on specifically, even a small number of people is is too much. So I kind of went back to the drawing board and looked at all kinds of technologies I could use. I yeah. considered using JavaScript and Node, um, which is not um, it's not actually concurrent, but it's asynchronous. Okay. And there, there are various things you can do to get concurrency, like running multiple instances of Node.js on the same computer. Um, but but it's it's not an ideal fit, and it's also a lot slower to build stuff with than it is with Ruby. And they're also like it's not as pleasant to debug things. And so then I was looking at, at you know Scala, and I was looking at um, Java, and I discovered Erlang. From all of this, oh, yeah. Erlang is uh, made by Ericsson. It's basically the whole point of the language is that it would be very good at handling lots and lots of dispatching and 
be super stable and never go down. And it's been used for telecom infrastructure. Okay. And Facebook used it for their messenger. Oh, for and the WhatsApp was built with know, Erlang as well. Yeah, and they had you know they they scaled up to like hundreds of millions of users with, I believe, fewer than thirty employees and fewer than thirty servers. Mm. Um, so it looked like a great choice, and there was this new language that uh, had come out, fairly new language, um, that's made by a former Ruby on Rails core contributor, and is built on top of the, the same virtual machine that Erlang uses, and that's called Elixir. Right. So that's... So hang on, sorry, back it up for, yeah. for yeah, yeah, the yeah, listeners sorry. like yeah, me, yeah, the non-technical listeners. This is like a... No, a this is wonderful, the great stuff. Uh, but so hang on, so there's the foundation here is Erlang, which was yeah. developed by Ericsson, and then on top of that, you get Elixir. Or yeah, it's sorry. like, um, it's so there's the way that uh, Erlang works, mm. or the way that Java works, either mm. one, is they compile to a virtual machine. They okay. don't compile to code that runs directly on your hardware. Oh. It, it compiles to a virtual machine that runs your code. Okay. And that, that way you can have the exact same uh, Java program on lots of different machines, mm. and as long as there's a Java virtual machine for that hardware, your Java code will run. Okay. Um, same thing is true with Erlang compiles down to this Erlang virtual machine. Right. So there are other languages that can target virtual machines. So like uh, on the Java virtual machine, there's Scala, which compiles down to the same bytecode that runs on the Java virtual machine. On the so Erlang virtual machine, there's this new one called Elixir that runs on that uh, same on the virtual machine. Virtual machine. So uh, Elixir can use Erlang's virtual machine just yeah. like Ruby can use Java's. Ruby can't. Well, actually, Sorry. there is a version of Ruby, which is also another version, JRuby, that compiles instead of compile instead of being interpreted, it compiles down to Java bytecode. Okay, and it runs on the Java virtual machine. Oh, that's really handy. So you see Elixir, and you think, this is what I really. So need I, to I focus saw on. Erlang, and I was like, so this Erlang. is the technical underpinning mm. that I want. Mm -hmm. And then around the same time, I saw people talking about, and this was like a late 2015, early 2016, mm. I saw people on Hacker News mm. talking about Elixir. Mm. And Elixir is like a more modern looking Erlang uh, that's, that's a little bit less intimidating for people with a background in, in like Ruby or other like popular modern languages. Mm. Um, and it was made by a, a Rubyist. Mm. And one of the things that sets uh, sets Elixir apart from uh, Erlang or from a lot of languages is there's been a focus on uh, developer experience. So it's like Ruby. It's a joy to work with. It's mm -hmm. it's uh, it's got a great package system. It's uh, um, it's got a lot of niceties built into it that make it. Uh, both productive and enjoyable. That's so interesting. I this is the first time I've I've thought or even heard of that. That there's it's it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a cliche, but it's, it's sort of like the the iOS for developers, as it were. It's like trying to actually not just write a language for the sake of you know developing 
a great product, a great application, but they're thinking about what is the experience for the developers? How can we make our language more appealing to the actual maker? That's, that's really cool. That's the thing that Ruby did really well. Okay. I think that's why it blew up so big in the mid to late 2000s. Yeah. So the, the, other, the other thread with this is there's a framework built on top of Elixir. Hmm. It's called Phoenix. And that framework is very much like Rails is. So it's like you have Ruby and Rails, uh -huh. and you have Elixir and Phoenix. Right. So it, basically what I saw was this thing that looked like it might be just as productive as Rails uh -huh. and be more performant than Node. And does it live up to that so far? Uh, it's definitely more performant than Node. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit more work to get started with than Rails. Um, there, there's less stuff that's built in. There aren't as many libraries because it's new and it's not as popular. Um, on the other hand, it has some advantages that make it easier to test and it, make it makes it easier to maintain a large application with. Cool. So I think on the, on the productivity, I would give it maybe a 9 out of 10 and I would give Rails a 10 out of 10. Sure. But it's, the thing is, if you're, if you're just doing a simple web app, yeah. Rails is fine. But if you're doing a highly interactive app, or if you, you need to support lots of free users, yeah. then there's a real reason to use Phoenix. Phoenix. So the kinds of use cases for something like, well, Elixir and Phoenix would be chat apps, mm -hmm. um, live video streaming, yeah. yep. um, games. It's actually pretty popular as a backend for game servers. Okay, okay cool. Um, it's also getting fairly popular for very high traffic servers like uh, Discord using okay. Elixir in the backend. Doesn't it? Pinterest has started using Elixir. What about yeah. like to do apps that have you know a lot of information flying in, changing the database? Productivity yeah. apps. Yeah. You could probably do that in almost anything. I, I think the demands. Unless it's unless you have tons of users, I don't think the demands would be that bad, even if you're using Rails or Django or something slow. Yeah. So you've now you've really gotten into Elixir and Phoenix. Yeah. And you are now just one of a handful. I think there's only two or three other screencaster uh, screencasters who are who are teaching this language online. So can you tell us what was the inception for Alchemist Camp? How did you get started? And yeah, what what's been the journey so far? And then we'll talk a little bit because it's it's uh, you've you've built some really interesting features into the site, and I want to get into those. But okay. let's let's first uh, I just want to explore like how Alchemist Camp came to, came about, and yeah, and, yeah. I, I should I can I'll go through this pretty quickly. So yeah, cool. Twenty seventeen, I basically spent learning Elixir and building this video chat plus vocabulary tracking app mm. for language learners. Cool. And I, I focused primarily on Vietnam just because uh, I, I had been there and I, I knew some people that I could you know, pass it off to and get, get some user testing. And I didn't make it. Like I, I did raise a little bit of money um, and I, I got a working app built. I did some interviews with uh, like language learning influencers uh, kind of a mistake was they were all uh, English speakers who like were on YouTube talking about stuff in English. I mean, right. a lot of them knew lots of languages, but it wasn't quite the right 
influencer group. So the so your target market was were, were people learning English. Yeah, Vietnamese uh, are learning Vietnam, English or Southeast Asian. Taiwanese learning English is yeah. great because I, I can communicate with them yeah. more easily. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But basically, yeah, it was like Thailand, Vietnam, um, Taiwan, Japan, any anywhere yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but if basically my target was people who wanted tools for doing conversation exchange. Yeah. And. I, I only had a few languages enabled, yeah. and it, it's, it was actually the poorer the area, the easier it was for me to get interest because there was like nobody trying to serve them. Sure. So, anyway, the so, uh, so it sounds like a fantastic idea. What what didn't um, work? I was using so I was using uh, an external API through Twilio for uh, for the signaling to connect to do the peer to peer connections for the the people whose phones or computers couldn't connect directly. Huh. They had an API in uh, in beta for WebRTC, which is that, that video technology peer-to-peer huh. uh, -peer browser huh. chat. And, and actually also like native iOS and native Android. Uh, the the thing was they they got out of beta, they increased their prices by hundred percent by a hundred times and they added a per minute charge oh. to all connections and if Ow. I've got two people who are using my service for free yes. to do a conversation exchange Screw that. and I have to pay by the minute to Twilio for no doing that so that that broke it and then I thought okay well maybe I can make my own signaling server yeah. and so I, I found this open source server that, that Google made called Coturn and I found uh, some some free services that would uh, do a part of the signaling called stun to STUN, it's probably not something you've heard of unless you're into WebRTC, but it's uh, you know it, it, there was a lot of work to do. Yeah, and that's, I, that's I had a, a lot of setbacks, yeah. and I didn't have much money. At Did all. you reach out to um, Trilio, right? Twilio, sure, yeah. Twilio, and, and ask them, hey, listen, um, I, I I've, I've got this app, it's up and coming. Uh, yeah. Can you guys cut me a deal or something like or I tried to, and they yeah. said, well, what kind of volume do you want? I was like, well, if this works, it's going to be huge, a yeah. lot of volume. And then they, you know, they uh, offered me a volume discount after reaching like X million seconds oh. or something. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I couldn't afford to use them at all under their terms. Mm. And I chatted with them some more and they asked if I was registered as a 503C corporation. I was like, no, this is actually uh uh, this is actually an LLC, and it's uh, <laughs> um, you know I, like I don't have anywhere near that that kind of uh, um, uh, how, how should I put it like that kind of overhead to even yeah. be, even be um, hiring people to do that yes. kind of registration for me. So yes. uh, I mean I did like a you know fifty dollar Wyoming Easy Corp thing. Yeah, um, yeah, or well, Delaware. Yeah, is Wyoming right? Um, Wyoming's cheaper. Uh, is Delaware, it, Delaware, is, Delaware the is the one. No, Delaware is the one. If you if you want to build a VC funded startup, okay, do a Delaware C corp. Okay, but for an LLC, like Wyoming. I don't think there's any. Yeah, you'd go with like Nevada, Wyoming, uh, I think Montana. Like there are a bunch of states that don't have very many people, right? That are competing for people to register their LLCs. Pro there. tip, guys, LLCs. Anyone who's who's looking to register, if you're not going to raise funding, don't yeah. get a C corp. Okay. It's just way more expensive. Okay. Um, Excellent. Yeah. So anyway, like the long and the short of it is yeah. I ran out of money. 
I developed severe repetitive stress injuries in both my wrists. And it was to the point where not only could I not program, but brushing my teeth hurt. Wow. And, and I was still in, still yeah, in Saigon. Money. No, this was in Taiwan. Oh, okay. Mostly. I was a digital nomad. Yeah. Um, but it, but my, uh, my two small angel investors, or two of the three, were in Taiwan. And Taiwan's got a uh, great medical yeah. health. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, That's so, what I was coming so I, to with like, that. <laughs> healthcare in Taiwan without insurance is cheaper than the U.S. with insurance. Yeah, it's um, nice. But but ultimately, I yeah, I couldn't do it, so I, I just took uh, I took a vacation. Didn't have a lot of money, but I did take a vacation. Mm -hmm. uh, went to uh, Peru. Uh, went to uh, basically like uh, you know like one of those jungle tours, but I, I didn't do like a uh, a rainforest tour, but I didn't do like an expensive one because I yeah. just got a local local guide and um, basically did not use a cell phone. There's no cell coverage. Didn't use a cell phone. Didn't use a computer. Um, you know, I, I ate way less and way way healthier than normal, and um, just like really kind of um, you know cleared my my mind and my my body. Um, Sounds like you'll kind of it get was, away then. Yeah, it was yeah, good. Yeah, sounds great. And when, I, when I got back, because uh, so I, so I, I had a return ticket to Taiwan, when I got back to Taiwan, I'm not even sure where I got the idea from, but I, I, I was kind of like, well, you know, this startup is not happening. Mm -hmm. My wrists are kind of in bad shape, but one of my good buddies who was struggling on his own startup actually bought me... Uh, like a, one of those uh, Kinesis Advantage 2 keyboards, oh. like super ergonomic. And I could, you know, I could use it like two, three hours a day. What a great guy. I was one of, probably my best friend in the world, so yeah. definitely a good guy. Um, and I just, I just thought, you know, like I've, I learned all this stuff about Elixir from dealing with these, these technical challenges in this startup that I failed at. Yeah. But you know, maybe I can just teach those things. And, like, the language is growing. Yeah. So I started a YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, the language is growing, so I started a YouTube channel. And that's how, that was how Alchemist Camp began. Yeah. So can you t tell us a bit more about Alchemist Camp? So it's very niche, focuses on Elixir and Phoenix, the two languages, yeah. right? Uh, well, Phoenix is the framework on Elixir. Phoenix, sorry. <laughs> Phoenix is the framework so on Elixir. Elixir. And, it's, and you build learning by building stuff. Right, so it's not like a textbook approach, it's very practical. Yeah, I start every episode with, hey, what's up? This is marketalchemist.camp, where we learn Elixir and Phoenix by building things. Fantastic. Yeah. So how long's it been running now? I started the YouTube channel December 2017. Mm -hmm. And I've had paid customers. So I didn't have the site when I started. I started with just a YouTube channel. But I've had paid customers since late June of 2018. So it's been, there's been a paid offering for just about one year now. Great. And I began my uh, thing about April last year, 2018. So hmm. I was just like, like, so I'm, I'm about a year behind you, as it were. Like you were kind of a year ahead of me in terms of the, the, uh, the timing there. Like I, I'm, I did my whole sort of free content 
getting the page up and running. For me, it wasn't a YouTube channel, it was a Facebook page. And now I've got a website, now I'm charging, charging for some content, just like you've now got your own website and you're charging for that. So I, I want to ask a bit about like the business end of things and, and the business model. So you've got pro content, you've got free content. Why did you go for a subscription model and how have you, I know this is something Ben's really interested in because uh, Ben's uh, trying to develop his own subscription model as well. And one of the things he's really interested in is in, in terms of like price raising, how do you, how do you do the, the price tiering? Actually, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about. I'm really also interested uh, in how you do the, you do uh, discounts or, or uh, you know, lower pricing for people in developing countries or, you know, where the GDP is, is not so high per capita. So I want to get into that, but how did you sort of start the pricing and the, the subscription model? Uh, all right. So... Uh, I started with just the free YouTube videos, yeah, and then I made a basic web page. And by basic, I mean I pasted some Markdown into Dillinger.io. It spat out some HTML, which I put on the server, and that was it. Yeah, um, it was just links to my YouTube videos. Then in one video, I said I'm going to make a premium offering. So I'll, I'll keep making free videos, but I'm going to make some premium videos as well. And if you're interested in them, please sign up on the email list or the email sign up link in the description of the video. Mm -hmm. And then I'll put you on a list and you'll get the first access and you'll get a discount for starting early. And I also had a link to a survey with just two questions. One question was, uh, what kind of content do you want to learn? Like what topics you want to learn about? Second question was, what features would you like to see on an Alchemist Camp website? And then there was a like a free form note where people could write anything they wanted. Cool. About sixty people, I think fifty three people saw the the video initially, and of those, I got like twelve email signups right away, and I got twenty some people filling out the survey, and then a few more people trickled in and joined the email list, and I didn't do any sort of like uh, pre-sales run through the email list or anything. Uh -huh. I just I just built the site and I used I built the site using Elixir and I used that effort as more content teaching people Elixir. So it was, it was a little bit recursive. It was mm. like I'm going to build this thing and show you how I built it. And this thing that I'm building is actually the platform that I'm, you're going to be getting more videos <laughs> on. It's um, great. So, so it was like economized as much as I could. Yeah. And it's once brilliant. it was up, then I just sent an email to those people and almost all of them bought. Great. It was, it was like, I think out of 14 people on the email list, I think I got nine or 10 yeah. right away. That's a crazy conversion rate. And that's like eight, nine ten dollar a month kind of a subscription was it I, I at the beginning i offered what did i offer i think i offered eight dollars a month or mm. 96 for the year mm. all like three people just bid at that and like got 96 dollars for the year then it was, it was like a 24-hour limit or 48-hour limit something like that mm -hmm. and there were people that signed up from that initial email but we just didn't meet that deadline uh -huh. and they paid either twelve dollars a month or a hundred and eight dollars a year 
Mm. And it stayed, that was my early bird pricing. Sure. And it stayed at that, like the $12 a month for several months. Mm -hmm. You asked why I chose subscription. Yeah. The way that I decide that, or the way that I framed it in my mind was mm. if the value of the thing goes down over time, it should be a one-time purchase. Mm. That would be like buying a movie, just like you watch it once, but you're not going to watch it like hundreds of times, yes. I hope. Uh, or buying a song where you would listen to it hundreds of times, but it's still like the value goes down after a while. Yeah. Um, and then on the other end, something like the value of hosting your blog only goes up the longer the blog has been there and the more content has been there. Mm. So that should be a subscription. Right. Or the value of access to everything on Netflix goes up over time because they're getting more and more stuff. Yes. And I, I saw my site is something where the value, it's not quite like Netflix, like it doesn't go up forever. Mm -hmm. Like eventually someone will just know Elixir really well and not need any more of my videos. Yeah. But for, you know, for the, the, the short to medium term future, uh, the value of the site is going up and up and up. Like mm. when I first started selling any content, I had like just a couple premium videos and maybe 20 free ones. And, and those included like source code links for uh, paying members, whereas people who weren't paying didn't get links to the source code. But now I have, you know, well over 100 videos. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, 15 or 20 of them are premium. Uh, actually, maybe a bit more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm aiming for between one third to one half paid yep and the rest free okay and how do you minimize that churn rate you did just mention it just now there's uh, i think we've we may have discussed this before together you think there's something like if someone like went through your whole video library and learned it all really well they'd probably need several months to a year to sort of like really get elixir down and then like so, so there yeah. you you you've you've just come up to the one year mark now. Mm -hmm. So, how many of those first initial uh, subscribers have uh, have purchased again or have have stayed on past that one year mark? It hasn't quite come up to the one year mark. Oh, okay, it hasn't. Uh, yeah. it, it will it will this coming week though. Okay. Um, <laughs> so no <pressure>. far, <laughs> based on my my churn rate, yeah. I, don't, I don't know past year, because it hasn't been past year, but sure. based on the churn rate, the average person is going to stay longer than a year. Okay, I've, I've had, Actually, I've had very low churn, uh -huh. and I don't know if it's because of how niche it is, or how personalized it is, or mm -hmm. the fact that um, I've kind of gone with the, the freemium high price model, mm -hmm. so um, the price is high enough that people that are price sensitive probably aren't buying and they're just watching the free stuff yeah which is still good because that gets me you know like they're sharing it my youtube videos and they're they're retweeting pretty much every time i tweet something out so it's like i really appreciate the free users and i'll keep yes. making stuff for them great but those people that are like now the price is 21 dollars a month okay and most people that are paying that i suspect either have a good paying software job or they're using Elixir at work, or their work is paying for it, so they don't care. Hmm. So they're, those people aren't going to churn much. So how, okay, you, you, you've got a, a real specific niche there. How, how much of your user base is sort of the, I don't know if pro-shumer is the wrong term, but it's like uh, they are 
using your content, I mean, there, how many people do you think are using this, this coding language professionally? How many people are sort of like interested in their hobbyists? Um, I, th I think for my paying subscribers, about half of them okay. are, are actually using Elixir at work. Mm. I think a lot of them are either evaluating using it at work mm. or they're learning it so they can do it next. Mm. There are a lot of, I, I would say the majority of my subscribers use some other language at work as well. Mm. Even mm. if they're using Elixir, maybe they're primarily uh, Ruby people, but yeah. they, they've hit some scaling limitations with Rails or they've got a chat client or they've got an API that they want to rewrite in Elixir. Mm. And can you walk us through the process of how, when you do raise prices, how you actually do that, um, how you implement a price hike? Ben, I know you haven't raised your prices yet, have you, Ben? No, not at all. Not at all, but you are. Do you want to just share a bit about your interest in that, Ben? Because I'm sure there are plenty of other people like like you. Like, Can you tell us a bit about your subscription model and, and what you envision for it? Is it like Mark's at all in that sense? Um, well, I'm just, I'm definitely not that far along, you know, I've just put a few articles behind a, a paywall. Um, By a few, you mean 50, but yeah. No, like right? most, of them no? Are, oh, what? No, most oh. of them are free, like about... Oh, okay, sorry, your total... About yeah, 45 no, articles are free and then the rest are just behind the paywall. Um, but okay, yeah, I'll add but to I meant the total, time. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah, but you know, like it's, it's the perfect, it's the perfect business model, isn't it? Because you know, you just keep people as long as they don't churn. You know, it's it's revenue every single month. It's hard to beat. Mm -hmm. I do like the predictability for sure. And so, how do you actually raise it? So you went from eight dollars to what was the first hike? To twelve. Although that that was like the very very beginning, and yeah. I think it just depended on whether if people had emailed me personally um, asking for the thing before I even put out the survey okay, versus whether if they jumped in from the survey. So it's only those real so it was early like Basically it was like $12, mm -hmm. then 15 then 18 and now 21 And so each time you put out an email to everyone, say, hey guys, raising prices. Yeah, and I, I email an update once every time I feel like it. It's, mm -hmm. it's about averaging once every other month uh -huh. and I just you know I give links to the the videos I've put up uh -huh. um, to useful things related to Elixir like maybe if a new version of, of some popular library came out or there was a good conference talk or something like that and if I'm going to do a price hike I'll say that in the email and every time I've done that a bunch of people have signed up because you know, mm. they want to get in before the price goes up totally um, so that has kind of helped growth it's it's almost like uh, uh, raising the price is is like doing a sale yeah uh, because it gets the same sort of uh, incentive for people to act it's so much better it's like you're raising the price so going forward you're gonna get more money yeah. and in the you know in the short term like in the few days ahead of you you raise the price so you're gonna get more sales what I've been doing is like I have a sale it's a three-day promotion but it's a discount so it's like I'm, it's sort of eating into my to my profit margin because I'm like well yeah come and get get the the, the, the price and yeah, come and get the course at a discount and sure plenty of people do sign up quite a, quite a few but uh, I have had very few sales at the actual 
you know, um, set price, like the actual full price, not many. So I'm starting to think for myself, how do I transition to a subscription model? Because I'm starting to see the shortcomings of uh, doing sort of a monthly, you know, three-day promotional launch for every course that I put out. I'm putting out a course every month at the moment. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm just so impressed by the way you've managed to get this, it's like sufficient price hike, like eight to $21 is more than double of what it was within a year of beginning. And your user rate is going up. And so your, um, your, you know, your revenue is going up. It's, it's, it's just really, really great. Are there any things you looking back over the last year, you've or just on that subscription model and pricing, you feel you could have done better or, or, or differently at all? It's really hard to say. Um, if, if I had more savings, like if I hadn't just uh, kind of crashed and burned out of a startup, mm -hmm. I probably would have kept every, everything free longer Okay. because that would lead to faster growth. Like, mm. like when everything's free, you'll, you know, you'll get a lot of people trying to help you out. Mm. Once there's a component of it that's paid, uh, it doesn't mean you won't keep growing, but you're in a different category. So I, I think there, there's definitely a trade-off of like, you know, how much risk do you want to face that you're not going to be able to make money from it ever Yeah. versus, you know, how much can you grow first? I'm mm. more, I'm more in, I guess I would say I'm, I'm more patient for growth than I am for revenue Okay. because of, you know, injured wrists and that kind yeah. of thing. And, and those, that's getting, actually been getting better. So this project has been wonderful for me that's good for you yeah. for your wrist yeah 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 because yeah. i'm not i'm not like coding eight hours a day no Mark, yeah. you're cutting you a little bit for the video a little bit. Yeah. did you get any negative Sorry. feedback from users when you did you know jump to that free to paid trend you when you made that transition were some people unhappy with you know now that they have to start paying for what otherwise they would have gotten for free and that what they were used to getting for free no i, I didn't get any negative feedback at all from that I have gotten a few complaints more recently because the prices are fairly high. Um, you know, one guy was uh, some, I forgot where he's from, somewhere in Northern Europe, so not like a really poor area, but he, <laughs> he was like, you know, for this price, I expect, you know, a video every two days. And <laughs> I was just, you know, I was just like, well, I, I make a lot of free videos, like check out this, this playlist of you know, 80 some videos on YouTube, you don't even have to go to my site for, yeah. maybe some of those will be helpful for you. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I've had some emails from people who were in poorer areas who were just like, oh my gosh, this is insane. And I did make region based discounts because yeah. of that. Yeah. So tell us about that because I don't know how common that is. Um, but I think that is a really good idea. If if you're doing something like what, like you are, I can't imagine there are many other screencasters for um, Elixir or Phoenix in, I, I, I don't know, maybe there are, but I, I can imagine, in, at least in, even if, if, the, if the English speaking world, there's only a handful, I can imagine globally, there are probably only a handful as well. So it's, if you're doing something this niche, it means that people all around the world are going to want to uh, get your content. For me, what I'm doing is, is it's English learning for Chinese speakers. So, yeah, there's a lot of Chinese speakers in the world, but it's still, you know, Japanese speakers, um, you know, Indonesian speakers are not going to buy my course. So for you, what I really like is that it's, it's, you can really go global. And 
like when when do you think people should do region based discounts and and when perhaps should they not and um, any any sort of tips or, or, or ideas for how, like how to do it like I think you use GDP yeah like I, I can yeah. say what I did Please, I yeah. can't really advise other people what they should be doing I'm not, yeah I'm not really in that position but yeah um, so for me a major concern is that though the US is my biggest market actually Brazil is huge for elixir because the language was made by a Brazilian <laughs> so cool. I, I have a lot of users in actually Latin America as a whole as well as English speaking countries and I also I'm not sure why but uh, I have had a lot of users in Nigeria mm. and uh, they're highly engaged and I've got some analytics so I can see like how often the same students are coming back and uh, you know just just looking at, at like how much the average person earns in uh, Brazil versus the US or Nigeria versus the US especially like there's it, it's kind of hard to charge the same amount mm. I, I guess the downside that most people would worry about is that um, you know what if, what if you're you know your avocado toast eating San Franciscan customer just gets on a VPN yeah it tends to be from Nigeria mm -hmm. I think that kind of thing is it's basically unavoidable like if mm. certain people are really uh, you know price sensitive would they know that if they unscrupulous they might yeah because they know because I've I've mentioned the region discounts before um, not in my email, but I've mentioned it on a, a big forum where Elixir users go. Okay, so it's not just that, for example, a Nigerian is, is on your site and because they're in Nigeria, uh, the they will see a discount, will see a discount right? So, but, but you're not, okay, so you didn't have to sort of make it public that you are, you didn't have to talk about this on Twitter yeah. or emails that you are having regional discounts, but you chose to anyway. I, I'm not putting yeah. it, you know, you know, front and center. It's like no. if, if an Australian goes to the site, yeah. they're not going to see, you know, you're paying $21 a month, <laughs> but if you were from the Ukraine, it would only be you know, 380 or something. Like, it's, I'm not doing that. <laughs> front but, and center, big, big wavy banner, you yeah. know, get 30% off if you're um, in, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, that, and, that wouldn't and, be smart. Uh, affiliate links of VPN companies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what, what I, uh, what I, what I decided was that you know there are going to be people who, actually, there are going to be people who just sign up for one month and then, you know, get the uh, unlisted links to every YouTube video I've made and download mm. all the source code, and then you know disappear. Yeah. And maybe even share those links with their friends. Like I hope they don't. It's illegal. It's not very nice because I'm I'm not a huge faceless corporation I'm just one person working on this yeah but it, it's impossible to curb it completely and I and I think I think the you know that there are a lot of people that do sign up from uh, from places where they probably wouldn't otherwise and hmm. um, I, I mean again like going back to Nigeria like that is the place where I have the most engaged users so awesome. and some of them are just tearing through the content and building stuff that's useful yeah and you know what like i bet some of them are are linking to alchemist camp from their blogs i, th I think like long term um you know helping more people is a plus yeah 
Um, one one side thing though yep. is I, the way that I did the discounts. It, it's it's not purely like you know the the GDP per person of India is uh, you know five percent of the U.S. Therefore, they pay five percent of as much. No. Um, what I'm doing is I'm doing a like a geometric mean okay. of the two GDPs. So it's kind of like uh, the square root of the difference. So, so if, if their GDP is is one twenty fifth of what the U.S. is, they would pay one fifth. Okay. And I haven't set up discounts for every single country. It's just the top twenty or so based on visitors, because I yes. have to do a little bit of work to set one up. Sure. But someone, you know, someone in Brazil will be paying me about nine dollars per month. Yeah. Instead of twenty one. Okay. And I think that's fairly reasonable because, um, going back to India, for example, yeah. the GDP per person is 2,000 a year, mm. but the people who are software engineers, they're definitely making way more than that. Yeah, of course. It's, it's definitely less than software engineers in California, but it's, mm. but it's way different than the average for the yeah. whole country. Yeah, so exactly. So that, that was kind of my, my uh, compromise. I think yeah. that's... that's, that's uh, yeah, that makes sense. It's pretty pretty logical. Um, yeah. So Ben, do you have any more sort of uh, ideas or questions about that? Oh, I was just thinking how much I how much I liked that the regional discounts. I think that's such a great mm -hmm. idea. You know, and mm -hmm. say if one of these guys from Nigeria does, you know, end up creating a company, and it's you know, and they and they say they make like a software as a service, and it's based on, um, it's based on Elixir. Then they're going to send their engineers back to, um, back to your, back to your service, and it just keeps going around, you know. It's a virtual cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope so. And, and yeah, and and Mark's and it know, costs like, me nothing. That's the other thing. Yeah, the only cost to me would be if everyone started using VPNs, and if I notice that happening, then then you know, yeah. maybe I'll make changes. Exactly. But. There's another great feature on Alchemist Camp that I want to get into, and that is. You've got a, a request board, like a feature request board. Oh yeah, yeah. This is really cool. Um, so, tell us how you how you set that up. So there's a there's a page where you can request features. But what I like is that you actually give users. Uh, do you call it sorry? Do you call it Elixir? The yeah, points? yeah. You call it Elixir points, and they they they've got a cute little like a uh, uh, graphic. It's it's like looks like something like you know philosopher's stone or something. It's like a little yeah diamond kind of a kind of a graphic and so you get these there's a green elixir that's what it's called right there is the also points. a purple elixir purple elixir okay. secret. and there will cool. be a pink elixir but i haven't oh that. no way okay okay for, for any uh, alchemist camp subscribers out there this is first you'll be the first to know so so there's yeah. these elixir points and you can you accrue these points over time based on how long you've been a subscriber a member and then you can use these points uh, on the request to request a feature. So what I like is you're not only giving them an opportunity to request a feature, but they have to sort of spend their points requesting a feature. So if they really want a certain feature, they can sort of like put all their cards on the table, put all their points in requesting that feature. And if they're sort of mildly interested, they might spend a couple of points. Yeah, something so like it's that. like they're voting with however many points they want. Yeah, and the longer they stay on the platform, the more points they get. So it's a reward mechanism, which isn't a direct, like it's not, it's not directly, it's not, it's not about the money they're paying. It's not like That's the longer really they stay, clever. they get a bigger discount. It's really it's a clever, resource they have to allocate. 
costs yeah, them something yeah, yeah. To, to vote, so they're going to take. It costs time. them time. Yeah, because they they need to stay longer on the platform to get those points. So that's really good, and so it rewards uh, long term users, you know, for their loyalty, and so it gives them, you know, it's, it's almost like yeah, like a voting rights. There, there is yeah, there is some like it may help with retention, like you're talking about. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that primarily when I made it, but. Mm. Um, I am really interested in gamification, mm. and uh, just a quick shout out to a book that I really enjoyed. Okay, uh, it's by a guy named uh, Yukai Joe, or it's spelled C H O U. This is uh, Taiwanese American. Oh, okay, yeah. And his book is called Actionable Gamification: hmm. Beyond Points, Leaderboards, and Badges, and it's it's basically uh, the you, most like... in depth. Comprehensive totally. book on gamification I've ever read in my life. Okay, I've got to read this. Uh, link to uh, that as well. Yeah. As everyone will know, in the last episode, there was. Yeah. I've so <laughs> I mean, the, the one sentence cool. version of it is yeah, yeah. there are about eight core drives for behavior within gamification. Uh -huh. Most companies just focus on three or so, okay. and they're the most negative ones. Wow. So, like, I don't want it to be a slot machine. I don't want it to be, like, a casino yeah. of, like, where it's my variable reward. Uh -huh. I don't want someone coming back because they're afraid their Farmville crop will wither if they don't log in every eight hours. <laughs> uh, I, I want some level of uh, achievement and ownership. Mm. And um, can't, probably can't work a higher purpose into Alchemist Camp. But mm. Totally could with language learning stuff. Totally. So, it's... You know, I, I I saw the feature requests mostly as a way to give the users more ownership of the of the project and the mm. site. And I wanted basically I wanted to I wanted to have a way that I could balance three groups fairly equally. One is just me, because I'm the one doing all the work and making all the stuff. The second is the paying users, because mm. they're the ones funding it all, making it possible for me to do it. And the third is just the wider group of free users because the vast majority of everyone that finds Alchemist Camp and the vast majority of you know the ideas and everything else comes from them. Mm. So I give myself a lot of green elixir. Right. And I give paying members one green elixir per day. Mm. And the free members get one per week. Oh, they get they get free. Uh, sorry, the free members get elixir too. Yeah, yeah, they oh, do. Cool. They do. The, I mean, if if it's something that only free users want, it can still it can still win. Yeah. Um, if it's something that only paid users want, it can still win. And if it's something only I want, it can still win. Yeah. But they're roughly balanced. And tell us about the results, because I I remember there was some there was there was a case where one guy just put all his elixir. On that one was, feature, yeah. like, it's like it's a player, all in. Oh my it gosh. Is, yeah. And, and I think he was the only one who wanted this feature, or something like that. It was, so yeah, <laughs> um, this is, and and actually, once I, I made the first video on it, he commented on the video. What did he, he say? He was like, "Yeah, one for," and then he named it. He said it was username. Okay, <laughs> he's like, I got got yeah, what I yeah. came for, yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, so I, I've had some, you know, paying really users funny. for almost a year that have yeah. like two hundred and fifty green elixir. Okay, and you know they have 
realize this and be like, oh, cool, thank you. I feel like I really feel rewarded. Yeah. But they've been voting for stuff they're interested in, usually like five elixirs. You don't have like a power hungry, super old user who's like Emperor Palpatine. Drops everything. Unlimited power. (laughs) Well, they are. Well, the 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 elder alchemists, I guess we can call them. They are. they are throwing a lot of votes, like because they, they've almost all noticed, and they're like, you know, throwing their way around ten points yeah. on multiple things, and, <laughs> um, and then emailing me telling me they, they think it's a cool feature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I like it. Yeah, but yeah, this this one guy is only like he was on for free for several months. He's been paid for like uh, a little over one month, mm. and I think he had forty two elixir or something like that. Something like that, and. The request was for test-driven development, which all, almost nobody's asked for. I've had a few people ask for it. Interestingly, almost all of them are from India. This, this user isn't. But he just really wanted that, and so he, he wrote the request. Then as soon as I... Because I, uh, with each request, I, as soon as a user makes their request, I actually have to grade it and say how difficult I think it will be, like how much mm. of my effort it'll take. Mm. So the like the rank for the feature and content requests is number of votes divided by difficulty. Okay. That way, you know, someone asking me for like me to change like a couple of words of text is obviously like I'm gonna respond to that faster than someone asking for some like huge new feature in the site. Mm-hmm. It's very transparent. So, I like that system. Once it was once it was uh, graded for the difficulty, this user just dropped every single point of elixir he had, and <laughs> that feature won. And uh, I've start I've recorded the first two videos on it, published the first one. Next one's going to go out in a day or two. So okay, cool. Yeah. And he's he's happy about that. He's yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's he, he needs he needs to test. And you know what? I th- I think long term this. Well, short term already, the engagement on my site has gone up quite a bit. Like people are checking more more often. They're not just looking at the uh, the feature requests, but they're actually spending more time learning as well. Like they're mm. going through the you know the earlier videos, mm. maybe trying to decide what they want to request. But somehow it's gotten you know it's gotten some positive influences on that side, and it's also given me good ideas. Like. People like the users found stuff I didn't even know about, and right, some, yeah. Sometimes I'm like, wow, that does look like a neat framework to check out. Okay, so the the, the it's like, it's it's great. It's like you're sort of outsourcing, not totally because I mean you're still you're still the main you know the the creator here, but yeah. you are to some degree outsourcing the the decision making for exactly what content are you going to create and what. What priority should I give to things? And that must take, you know, quite a lot of stress off off your shoulders because it is a community-oriented sort of uh, mechanism which gives them a voice, and you know, it is it is a perfect way to serve them and uh, and, and make them more satisfied. And yeah, I, I just think it's it's just so great from a um, gamification standpoint. Yes focused at me, yeah. it's hugely motivating to see this list of like 12 things that my users, mm. often my paying users, mm. are asking for. 
Yeah. And to know, and also I don't have to think that hard about it. It's like, no. oh, this is the thing people want the most. This the is what I'm making next. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's great. I, I really ought to do something like this for my courses. For I I did do a little poll once uh, a couple of months ago. I asked people like, what would would like a course topic would you prefer for the next vocab course? Would you prefer a vocab course based around food or sport or something else? And that's not too bad. But I like the way in your system, you reward people who've been there longer. And so people are more um, thoughtful about how they use their points. But I can see, I can see all sorts of possibilities for myself. I can, I could use this, you know, just not just for what to course topics are being made, but if there are any other feature requests, you know, if, if they want some other, uh, some other, some other something else that I haven't got on offer in the course structure at the moment, um, I haven't thought of a way to actually sort of set it up, but I'm really interested in this idea myself uh, for my for my yeah, we, yeah, waiting the the number of votes each person gets might mm. be difficult, but you can yeah, do um, user voice, like that's uh, like a third party tool for for feature voting. Okay, and so they have. I don't know if they have Chinese or not, but you can check it yeah, out. Yeah, I could check it out, and, but they have some sort of a like a point mechanism thing like that. It, yeah, users vote on what they want. Yeah, and they, they just get like one, one vote. Person, they one, vote. one, yeah. one person, one vote. Because one of the disadvantages with the Facebook uh, poll surveys I had is that you can. Oh no, I did go and check this. You can turn off that setting. There's, I think, the default setting is people can vote for more than one option, but the non-default, if, if if you can, I think you can toggle that off so people can only vote for one thing at a time. Anyway, not to get into the weeds about this, but I think that's. I just think the whole idea is is really great. Um, so yeah, I think I, I just want to sort of go a little further, um, screencasting, right? It's, it's, it's a really big thing now and it's so, it's so well suited for, for learning code. You've mentioned a couple of other screencasters. I think a guy who does, is it Python or, or, uh, anyway. Uh, Rails. Chris Oliver. That's right. Rails. And, um, he's doing really well. And I just want to, want to, not to say that you're going to, exactly for him specifically, but do you have any sort of other mentors or any other role models in this screencasting space that you are um, looking to emulate in Alchemist Camp or where do you see Alchemist Camp sort of going, you know, is into the months and the years down the road? Yeah. So the first question, uh, so Chris, I discovered on Indie Hackers after mm. I hadn't been working on Alchemist Camp for that long, but I saw he had a similar system and there was a lot I could learn from because he was like three or four years further along in it. Mm. Um, and I liked his business model. I liked, you know, that he, you know, he's only got like, I think 9,000 YouTube subscribers, mm. but it's, it's making over 25,000 a month, I think. Yeah. Which, wow. yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> I would be happy just to you know, get up to like covering my living expenses. Yeah. And, um, I'm covering more than my rent. So that's well done. We're, we're getting Maybe. Few months, few more months, I hope. But uh, uh, one screencaster that I have uh, followed for a good while, uh, especially through his podcast, is Jeffrey Way. Jeffrey Way, who made Lyricasts, which is gigantic. Um, and what is Lyricasts? Lyricasts. He teaches Laravel and PHP. Okay. But he's, um, yeah, he's he's just really good at teaching things. Um, one thing that he does that uh, I find very appealing, just because of my own limitations, is he's not, 
doing some you know super high production value uh, edited video where he has uh, where he's maybe recorded the audio separately from typing everything out. Mm -hmm. He just you know he just uses a microphone, uh, talks through what he's working on as he types it out, and if he makes a mistake, he'll just pause and you know redo it and then cut that part out of the video. Yeah, and that's a level of production that you know a single person, even one who's just getting started out, can do. Yes, and you know like it's the value in. Uh, what he's doing, teaching, you know, PHP and Laravel, or what I'm doing, it's it's not from having a really flashy video. No. Um, I mean, maybe if you're doing a totally different business model and you're being like a, you know, an influencer, or or maybe you're doing one-off sales at a high ticket price, then you have to put way more investment into that side. Yeah. But for what I'm doing, uh, I think yeah, just more more work on the actual content that helps people mm -hmm. and then maybe way down the road invest more into uh, the the presentation of it the, uh, yeah I think that's what Chris did right I think yeah. I think you mentioned he's he's sort of um, improved the optics a little bit recently uh, but on, on, on some of his free YouTube videos or some of his uh, but he's he's pretty much t taking the same approach I, I think you know just just by virtue of how people learn like if you just yeah. try to do one perfect video per month or something you're not going to improve as fast as if you just put out uh, stuff where you're trying but you know it's it's less perfect like every single week or twice a week totally Ben what do you have any thoughts on that I mean yeah it's, um, um, yeah. it's interesting it's it, it depends so much on who the audience is and and yeah like what purpose you're making it for like I went to a um, a talk given by the CEO of uh, Masterclass. Uh, do you guys know Masterclass? I do. Sounds familiar. Yeah, no, I see their Facebook ads. It's like it's like really high level. It it's like Udemy, but it's like the tutors or the teachers are all famous people. Like it's all like um, you know exactly like right. The highest, yeah, yeah. No, I've seen these ads. Level. So. Yeah, yeah, like it's yeah, like sorry, keep talks going. by like Dustin Hoffman, and uh, they mm. said they have one. I think that he said they have one by Steph Curry. You know the NBA, NBA player. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but it's like <laughs> <We're in Taiwan>. <laughs> what is <laughs> what's uh, what's massive to that business? Everyone's model? got a huge. And it took yeah. them a little while yeah, to sure. you know work it out. Is that to get those people to teach those classes? Yeah. They have to have amazing quality production. They have to make them look good, you know. Then of course. they're not going to be satisfied mm. with, um, yeah, with you know something that's just strung together. Um, and so the mm. and so the amount of money that they spend on each video is, he said, it's equivalent to like a feature film, which is just God. mind blowing. Um, yeah, so it's I mean, isn't it interesting? Like it's it's all about learning as well, and it's mm. the same format, but same video format, but it is just all dependent on the audience and the, you know, and who's teaching and what everybody's needs are. I, I think also in their case, the some of the value proposition isn't actually learning. It, like some of it is just the status of the teachers. Mm. Getting wanting to get closer to you know to whoever the, totally. the teacher is and to be able to say you know I, I did a course by you know, Dustin yeah Hoffman you're not going to be graded in the same you're not going to be evaluated in the same terms as far as far as like 
how much did their teaching actually improve your abilities at whatever? If it's mm. Dustin Hoffman teaching versus mm. if it's some guy you've never heard of, Chris, teaching you like Ruby on Rails. Yeah, there's definitely an element of, uh, I don't say voyeurism or anything, but it's, it's definitely like you're getting to see this star performer or star director or whoever, whoever's teaching the course. Mm. You're getting to see them um, in a way that other people don't get to see them. Exactly. You know, you, it's yeah. Because really it's behind a paywall, yeah, it's limited access. It's it's sort of like, um, again, like because it's maybe some of them are celebrities, you might think of it's kind of like the paparazzi sort of uh, unpublished you know, collection of photos. But that that's, that is really voyeurism. In this case, it's different. They're making a course and it's constructive knowledge and everything. But you're experiencing them, you know, sharing insider knowledge with you in a way that most or everyone else can't cannot so that's i think that's a real appeal if you're a huge dustin hoffman fan like you're you're going to be really tempted you know i can imagine that's a high high ticket yeah <laughs> and, and i think that kind of goes back to what we were saying before with like the uh, the one-off versus subscription model yeah they both totally work hmm. um it's it's kind of more about are the other things you're doing congruent with that part of your business yeah. You know, like, like if you're doing one-off sales and you don't bother sending emails very often or you, you have like an ugly sales page, yeah, that's going to hurt you a lot more than if it's a subscription model. Yes. Yeah. And on the contrary, like if you've got a subscription model, but you spend most of your time working on email sequences or something like that, you, you may have other problems. Yes. I think that's yeah, so subscription important model. to mm. building your business is finding out what you know, which, which, which one of these many options to go with. Like, I'm sure it wasn't mm. easy for Masterclass to, you know, put together such a high production value um, video. Like, that's so complicated, so much harder to do than, than a quick, you know, YouTube video. But it's what they had to do. Like, you might want a subscription model because that is what gets you, you know, recurring predictable monthly revenue. But yes. that's not necessarily, you know, what is going to fit. And I'm kind of finding that with my business. I'm thinking that mm -hmm. e-commerce might be more of a way, a better way to monetize than what some subscriptions are. Um, I think you've had most of your profits come from a couple of Shopify sales now, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that's just, you just have to listen to that. Yeah. You have to look for exactly just just various you know channels um, for for profits and so yeah just just sort of I think I think we're sort of uh, coming around to sort of a natural kind of conclusion here, Mark. But um, tell us if if you if you have anything more you want to share. But I I oh I could answer your last question. Oh please yes yeah, like sorry the next plans. Um, <laughs> yes no yeah. I think that's right. Uh, so I'm gonna keep doing Alchemist Camp. Yeah. I'm gonna keep growing it. Um, my, my next plan is I'm going to start building a product that cool. is, is not just content, but I'm going to you know, build some software or some other kind of product apart from my current videos. And I'm going to try to choose something that at least a decent overlap of my existing audience might be interested in. Mm. So that... That's like the next plan to, that's to the grow next things. Plan. And, yeah. and you think that's that's next year or that's, that's I think I'll I think I'll have it out this year. Okay. I'm almost positive. Okay. Wow. 
Okay, any uh, any ideas? We're not sure what it is yet, or you still you still I have uh, so I, I've been going through an exercise to right. generate a lot of ideas for it. Wow! I'm gonna get maybe ninety or so, and then cull them down based on a number of criteria, including, uh -huh. including do they make sense for at least say a third of my existing audience, mm. and then I'll you know I'll pick pick one, give it a shot. Uh, if the initial feedback is bad, then I'll go to my second choice. And yeah. So on down yeah. the list. And this is that idea. And this is uh, for developers to use. It's a product for like it's like a. Yeah, it's going to be yeah, it's going to be sure something yet. that appeals to a lot of Elixir developers. Okay. It probably won't be Elixir specifically, uh -huh. but it might be a tool or service that developers use. Mm -hmm. It might be. Uh, um, it might be a, a more general purpose app mm. that'll, that developers tend to be likely to be interested in. Mm. Um, it, it's not this one, but just one example of a tool like that would be spaced repetition mm. systems for memorizing things. Like, mm -hmm. For whatever reason, mm. like a lot of programmers, when they're learning a foreign language or learning whatever, really gravitate towards that kind right. of system. Right. That, that sort of... Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 more efficient than just pure repetition. There's the whole thinking is there's a certain, um, as far as I understand, there's a certain cognitive sort of pattern that, and a certain time interval that if you are reminded of, of a certain thing, you know, for certain, for example, a certain word, at at that regular time interval, it, it does you know, sort of ingrain it um, much more strongly than if you sort of learn it, you know, irregularly. Right. Is that, is that, yeah, that's yeah. Like space, it's, it's basically yeah, about that's the whole idea. trying to get more efficiency out of yeah. your study. Time. I can imagine developers, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Being and very lots of other people to too, that. but it's, yeah. there is an overlap. There is an overlap. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that's really great. Um, so, like, I, yeah, so you want to, you know, keep growing Alchemist Camp. And uh, what would you say to, like, if, if, if I was a screencaster, if I, I wanted to start, you know, like a screencasting um platform or a website or something like that like where would you start if 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 you you know go back a couple of years and how you began like what advice would you give to, to yeah. newbies who are sort of wanting to get into that so i guess yeah so a year and a half ago year and seven months ago i was starting that the i thought of a few different criteria um i wanted to find something that was niche enough mm. that there wouldn't be too much competition mm -hmm. i wanted to find something where the potential audience would um, would be willing to spend money on it mm. uh, and I know that's true for coding screencast because of Jeffrey way and Chris Oliver and all, many yeah. many other people yeah um, I also wanted something where learning that thing myself would give me an advantage for future things I want to do mm. so for example one programming language which I considered is Rust, which okay. is an up-and-coming programming language growing very quickly. Mm. Uh, a lot of people that use it are working at huge companies, uh, like Dropbox used it. Um, it's, it's good for making uh, very small, very fast code, but it's a lot of work to make stuff with it. Okay. And it's kind of got a high learning curve. So, so it's good for the patches, reason, that kind of thing. It's good for making uh, low-level stuff like it's used for oh. Firefox like a web browser um. it's used for 
very low level, high performance like networking protocols and systems. And, and the reason I didn't choose it is because while it's intellectually interesting, and while there is a market just at least as good as Elixir's, at the end of teaching this for two or three years, uh, I've gotten really good at Rust, which is great if I want a job at Netflix or Microsoft or <laughs> Dropbox, but it's not good if I want to be an entrepreneur and build my own thing yeah. because it's too low level. Got like it. I want something where I can build quickly, like Elixir. Got so, it. so I would just say, like, think of like what the market opportunity is and how interested you are, but also think a little bit about uh, what it will do to your skills yes. as they apply to things you're interested in doing in the future. Yes. This comes back to something I, I, I saw. And, and it wasn't not a coder or a screencaster, but like a, a film a guy who made a course about filmmaking. He's he's um, making a monster from that course. Actually, it's it's, one, it's apparently I think it's top one percent highest uh, grossing courses on Teachable. Oh. And he was uh, yeah he was talking about like look the whole approach with this e learning you know uh, industry that's ha happening now is like you don't have to necessarily be masterful at what you're teaching to begin with. You just need to know sufficiently more than the average person yeah to be yeah yeah so like you know i think this is really important to realize is that you know like especially when you know formal when, when, when you apply sort of a formal education sort of framework or thinking to this kind of thing that's is there the barriers really aren't there as long as you have the knowledge and the skill to start teaching the basics to someone while you master the more advanced level stuff you grow and you teach others how to grow their skills. It's yeah. it's it's really I beautiful. Totally yeah. agree. And can I share one more link with you? Please. Yes. It's how I tricked myself into being awesome. It's a blog post by <laughs> Chris Strong. Okay. <laughs> basically taught himself various technologies. Uh -huh. Blogged about them every day and wrote like three books within a year and a half or something. And he had kids and it was like oh my it's God. like. Yeah, he just like came up with this system, taught him things, taught himself stuff, taught the internet as he did it, and made books out of it. And he's pretty awesome. Who's this guy? Okay, man, yeah. we, we gotta get <laughs> gotta get onto that link. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got a few links to share. Got some homework for everyone to do. We do, and uh, yeah, I, I just have one last like kind of thing that's kind of itching me. I'm so curious about that because you just talked about. Um, Sorry, you, you're bringing up ideas. Like this, this is just this is a blast. Yeah, yeah. this is great. I, <laughs> the last thing um, about uh, you just mentioned that you were just considering doing that other language, which is quite popular right now. Rust. Rust. Okay, I'm really interested. Like, which I am learning now. You're learning now. I, I don't on the side. want to be, but it's just it's fascinating. And okay. I, I like can't stop myself from spending yeah. like half an hour a day on it at least. Just checking it out. Yeah. Like, what is okay? I'm really interested at the intersection of like how, for example, screencasters or how do people pick what sort of language we've got another friend julian who's like doing um blockchain dapps right decentralized yeah, apps for on but block, like he's but really considering like all kinds of other yeah yeah he's looking at all yeah. this other stuff so i always hear you guys like talking about like you know what's the latest upcoming thing what's there's a I'm definite so natural selection of these things isn't there and uh -huh. it can be hard to pick which one's going to be you know the well, next uh, JavaScript yeah. or whatever. And that's interesting because like I'm teaching English, like <laughs> like English ain't going away anytime, anytime soon. And, and like, <laughs> it's just like, 
I'm just thinking about it, like, oh my, yeah, I think English is going to win, yeah. And I'm just thinking of myself like, oh my god, like, what if I was like, I had to choose between one of these, and I just, I just read the news, you know, some some news that Netflix is now using this language, and I'm thinking like, oh, you know, this is going to spike the demand, you know, like. I think people worry too much about that. Yeah, okay. I think so interesting. So, so you know what, like that. This goes back to earlier in our, our talk. Um, that language that I used when I got into Groupon was called uh. CoffeeScript. Yeah, what, it, what is that? It's a compiled to JavaScript language. It okay. Was, it, oh, was like, it was like something coffee that... It coffee in Java? No. I don't know. I, I it, but it, it looks like... <laughs> Sorry, that was very non-technical inference. It, it kind yeah. of looks like a cross between Ruby and Python. Uh -huh. Like it had... It had uh, significant white space like Python and it was very clean and it, it just removed a lot of problematic things in JavaScript. Uh -huh. Hugely popular in 2013. Nobody uses it now. Backbone.js, that, that uh, front-end framework I used, yeah. was hugely popular in 2013. Nobody uses it now. I pretty hyper-specialized on both while I was learning and trying to get a job and it got me, you know, past the point at which I was useful to a company like Groupon and nobody uses it now and I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. Like it still helped me a ton and you know maybe you know I was at a very low level so my goal was just get a job at like a good Silicon Valley unicorn uh -huh. uh, or even you know a pretty good one that's on its way down. <laughs> um, but. Uh, if someone, actually I believe Chris Strom, that same guy I just mentioned, mm. did write a book on Backbone.js. Mm. And you know what, like the book still raised his profile and then he did books about other things. Yeah. So I, I think even if you pick the wrong thing, mm. you can still gain significantly from it mm. and then just you know, change yeah. to something else. Something else. Yeah. Jump ship. Yeah. Obviously, it's best if you pick the thing that's going to become gigantic, but I think even picking the wrong niche is, yeah. is Be fine. adaptable. Yeah. So there you go. You know, yeah. don't, don't, don't overthink it. Go with what you're interested in and what you think is going to develop your skills to, in, the, in the direction that you want to head in. Just keep moving yeah, forward. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Fantastic. Well, Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Create Your World podcast today. Um, I am so, so honored. And uh, Ben, uh, we have some links to share, don't we? Absolutely, we do. Thank you for those Including, stories, Mark. That was fantastic. Well, thanks, both of you. I, I enjoy This is like the first uh, podcast of this type I've been on. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. We, we, I, I, I was thinking to myself, you must do this all the time because, <laughs> <laughs> because you've done such a great job. Where can our listeners find you, Mark, if uh, they want to learn Elixir and Phoenix? And, uh, or, and or see your Twitter the, handle. And see the upcoming project. Yeah. yeah. Super um, watch. I think probably the, the best place to go would be go to alchemist.camp. That's actually the domain. Uh, the TLD is camp. So alchemist.camp slash podcast. And I have a few podcasts. They're, they're very short, not like this one. Uh -huh. And it's just me. Uh, but I've got a few that talk about... Uh, you know my ideas about bootstrapping and learning and and just stuff of general interest where even if you're not an elixir person you might find something useful great so that's more of a you know general use yeah. you know, something everyone can tune into so there you go guys if you're interested in Mark's ideas and if you found his stories 
really inspiring and, and engaging. And look, um, he's got some more tips for, for you guys at, uh, with that podcast. That's alchemist.camp forward slash podcast. Yep. And we've also, I, I, you've also got an uh, ESL blog or English teaching blog for anyone who's interested in that. I do. It's uh, T-O-S-H-U-O dot com. T-O-S-O-U. T-O-S-H-U-O dot com. It's not ideal, but it is six characters. <laughs> there um, you go. Yeah, it's, we'll link it's to pretty that old, as well. though. That's, that's, that's like, you know, me of 2007. What you'll find there. Oh, but I'm, I'm sure a few, few people would like to uh, dig more into that because that was a very interesting stage of your life. Yeah, excellent. And Twitter? Uh, I have uh, Alchemist Camp oh. and Logic Mason. Logic Mason? Yeah. Now that's a memorable name. That is. Okay, well, Ben, anything more from your end? Nope, that's it. Okay, well, thanks to everyone for listening. And if you haven't left us a review on the iTunes uh, podcast app. Oh, that, is, it, is it the iTunes or the Apple podcast? I think, I think it's I think, Apple podcast. Isn't it? It's, it's the podcast. Apple podcast. Yeah. 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 If you haven't left us a review, guys, we um, we haven't had a review yet. So if you would... I'll leave one. Oh, thanks. Yeah, why not? Okay. He's <laughs> our, our number one fan. Thanks, Mark. And yeah, but <laughs> um, guys, make sure you... <laughs> Best episode yet, totally. And uh, just leave uh, a review if you like, and, and don't forget to hit subscribe. And we'll be back next Friday for more. Okay, guys. Beauty. See you next time. See ya. Thanks. See ya.